Hi, I'm Nick. I'm getting married today. I'm also a firefighter and first responder. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I can make it to my ceremony to start the next chapter of my life. When you see flashing lights, remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. We have an amazing, amazing show for you today. I am honored to bring you Rob O'Neill, better known as the man who shot Osama bin Laden, now retired U.S. Navy SEAL, uh, author of a book called The Operator, which was published in 2017, which I highly recommend to you, and American hero, truly an American hero. That term gets overused, in my opinion, um, in today's day and age, And but this is this is the real deal. And we thought what better way to mark and honor Memorial Day than to have a, a real life American hero on taking us through some of the most incredible feats of bravery that you'll ever hear about. And it's not just the raid on the bin Laden compound and what happened that night. When you hear what Rob O'Neill and his fellow SEALs have been involved in and the things that he's seen and done, uh, you'll have enormous respect for him and it will make you want to try harder as a human being. And that's the appropriate way to be feeling on Memorial Day, right? I think for too many of us, just a three-day weekend, it's, you know, an extra day off and it's the kickoff to summer and we have barbecues and we have drinks and, you know, we're sort of going about about our business. We see a lot of American flags, but do we really stop and think about what it means? Well, we need to. It's about respecting and honoring those who have died while serving our country uh, or thereafter. It's it's something you can mark. You can go. You can lay flowers at a veterans ceremony or a cemetery, or you can take a moment to educate your kids on what we're doing. What does this day mean? Uh, there's a there's a national moment of remembrance every everywhere at 3 p.m. Whatever your local time is at 3 p.m. on Memorial Day, just take a minute and take one moment of one one minute of silence and think about the heroes who made such incredible sacrifices to make this world a safer place for you, for me, for our kids, the strong, the brave, the heroic, who, who gave everything for us. You know, you go about your daily life and you, you don't think about them and you don't think about the gold star families who bear the scars of those sacrifices. So it's a day, yes, to celebrate those who are brave enough to join our, our military and, and who took these risks to celebrate their lives. But it's also a day of somber reflection, a day for profound gratitude. And if you're not feeling that when you listen to Rob O'Neill, then I can't help you. I, I can't help you. Uh, you know, we played a soundbite from Ronald Reagan uh, on Friday talking about the meaning of Memorial Day. And one of the things he said was, freedom is not bought cheaply. And that is 100% true. It's the thing that we should be thinking about in a day like this. And it's something Rob O'Neill has seen firsthand. Proud to bring him to you. 60 seconds away. Rob, how are you? 
I'm doing very well. How are you doing? I'm great, and it is an honor to talk to you this Memorial Day. You are the perfect person, and I'm delighted that you've given us this time this day. Thank you. That means the world to me. Thank you. I'm very, uh, very excited to talk to you. Oh, so here's something I didn't know about Rob O'Neill, even though I've interviewed you before. I know your story. I'm totally impressed by you, like most sane Americans. I did not know. I I guess I knew at one point, but forgot that you were from Butte, Montana, where we actually were for part of the quarantine last year during coronavirus. I had no idea you were in Butte, Montana for the quarantine. I I was not. I was in Tennessee. But yeah, I, I was actually just in Butte, Montana. Uh, last week for a golfing event uh, for some friends of mine and, and uh, Butte, Montana this summer, you really can't, can't beat it. The weather there's gorgeous. The people are good. The food's really good. The only issue with the food is they have a tendency to cover everything in gravy. So it's, it's not best for physiques, <laughs> but it's, uh, everything's wonderful. I was going to say, you say that like it's a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, well, even when I'm in like New York City or anything, like at breakfast, and I'll order hash browns and ask for gravy and the diner will say, why would we have gravy? Like, Potatoes are great. What, what are we? What are we in China? <laughs> why? Why not, madam? Um, yeah. So we were we were out in uh, in Big Sky for most of it, and then you know two months into it, it was like, okay, we got nothing to do. We haven't seen humans, and somebody recommended that we go to Butte, which, as you know, is totally open air and has this amazing playground, which they were recommending for our kids, and uh, and has the the mining museum, which had opened up by the time we went. I think it was in May by the time we went to. To Butte. And so um, we went into the mine and we got the tour and we had some great food and we played at the playground. And it was such a special day. And all, all three of my kids absolutely loved it. But especially at that time, my, my then six-year-old, because of course he spent the whole day that day and thereafter telling everybody he was going to butt, <laughs> which doesn't take much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we've heard that one before. The, 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 um, the sure. mining museum. It's incredible, too. I'll still take the tour. I grew up there the first 19 years of my life. And just going up there and seeing what uh, the miners did, how they lived. Uh, my my, uh, my grandfather was a miner and how he it was like 12 hours on, 12 hours off, a mile below uh, the surface. And, and he always would say, like, you only need two pairs of pants, and two pair, you know, two shirts. Uh, you know, we wear one in the mine and then just getting cleaned and you come back up, get some sleep, switch it out, go back into the mine. It's just, but just to hear the stories of, uh, the work that they used to do and, uh, everything from the, the copper, the, the gold, the molybdenum to the ghost stories to all the, uh, the stories about the red light district and then the birth of the pork shop sandwich and all that. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful city. It was awesome. It is a day that we will never forget. It was one of the highlights of our entire year. And I recommend it to everybody. So, and just the people are so nice and beautiful. It's just a different way of living out there. Just sort of, I don't know, I don't want to say good, clean living because that assumes too much, but just open air, you know, respect your country, love the flag, do your duty, go to work. Don't complain. It's just, I don't know. It's sort of old school. And I, and I love that. And that's, that's how you grew up. That, that that is that is, and Megan, I got to be honest. You're the first person I've ever heard in my life say the the highlight of the trip to Montana was viewed. <laughs> it was. It was great. We have all the pictures of us in the hard hats with the lighting, you know, the lights on oh, our foreheads, cool. and mm-hmm. going down under and seeing how dark it is, and learning about you know what happened, even with the animals that they said that I think it was donkeys or um, it was donkey. I think it was donkeys that, that they would keep in there to help. Yeah. yeah, and they would go blind because they were underground all the time. I'm getting a, I'm getting a nod from my chief of staff, Chris uh, Kelly, who uh, you actually met her. She, she's also my sister. She's in Butte, Montana, right now. Yes. She's up there. When you I came out of Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, very cool. 
Uh, tell please tell her I said hello. She can hear you. She's she's uh, she's, she's blushing right now. She's a big fan. Uh, she's a fan of mine too, so don't worry about it. She gets. I talk to her every day, so she she gets starstruck once a day. So don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> so the two of you grew up out there, and you do you did not have helicopter parents. This does not surprise me. None of us really did back then. How old are you now, Rob? I just turned forty five. Okay, yeah. So you're, you're five years younger than I am, but nobody in the seventies or eighties grew up with helicopter parents, and. Even though your parents weren't helicoptery, you you write in your book about how your mom did worry about you. I mean, there's all sorts of ways you can get in trouble in the great outdoors, especially in Montana. And you were out there learning to shoot with your dad, hunting and so on. So it sort of it comes back later. But your mom, she did keep an eye on you. She did worry for her your safety. She yeah, she was good too. And it was speaking of like helicopter parents. I remember you can, as opposed to getting a group text message, you could tell everyone was where all the bikes were crashed in the front yard. And you yes. could go out back and drink out of the, the hose. That's the, that's our bottled water. And then when the streetlights come on, everybody has to go go in. That's it. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we're all fine. I, th- I think a couple of um, cuts and bruises and scrapes and, you know, the occasional fight in the back alley, it makes you a better person because you you lose from you, you learn from adversity and from losing. Um, it's the whole, you know, I've, I've never uh, lost. I've either won or I've learned type thing. And, and uh, you know, we're, you know, we're all, you know, we're. You got your kids with you right now. I have my children too, and you know we're all we're all trying to do the right thing. But there was nothing wrong with not wearing a helmet everywhere, and you know occasionally falling mm-hmm. in a mud puddle. Oh my gosh, it's crazy. We never wore helmets. Biking, never. Skiing, never. <laughs> I mean, it was just never, never even wore a seatbelt. I mean, my parents stuffed us into a VW Bug. All three kids and two parents and a dog. No one had a seatbelt on, and both parents were smoking with the windows up. I mean, it's like, <laughs> and it's I'm, like I'm they were trying sure to hurt us. <laughs> if you had a, a bigger a bigger sedan, you could fit the. The little uh, carrier of the baby in the back window. She's fine right there. That's cool. That's my my younger sister Kelly. She's in there. <laughs> exactly. There were, or then and then we moved up to sort of the big wagon. You know the sort of Chevy Chase vacation family truck. Oh yeah. And uh, you could sit in the way back. Yeah. It was like God forbid there was a, you were rear ended. I mean all all of the children be instantly gone. <laughs> it's like, no one thought about it. I'm pretty. I'm surprised there wasn't like an autopilot for the guy driving the van that can go back and make a cocktail or something like that. Just the way it went. <laughs> that's, that's not autopilot. Come to think of it, we cruise control. Maybe we need to bring that back. So, all right. I think it's interesting in your history because this is sort of true of uh, Scott Kelly, the astronaut. You know, he he talks openly about how if you look at how he did in school, if you look at his early childhood and even later childhood in college, you would not have predicted this guy's going to go on to become a famous astronaut, right? Um, you, I would say it's fair to say it was not totally clear you were destined to become a historical figure because before you joined the SEALs, tell us what your job was. I Well, I, I had a few jobs. Um, right before I left, I was a miner. I worked at Montana Resources. And by mining, because it is a mining town, I mean, I was the guy that was smart enough to go in, use a shovel and put the um, the silt back on the conveyor belt. That was pretty much it. Uh, before that, I did I did uh, did odd jobs like delivered pizzas, worked at a furniture store. But one of my That's favorite jobs was actually I, I worked at McDonald's. Oh, awesome! And uh, well, I, 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 I heard with, you were delivering taco pizzas, and I was like, I did, I did, I, I did. I delivered taco pizzas from the Boo Villa, which I, I I think it's still open. I drove past it last week, and the taco pizzas were incredible. We were just a bunch of well, college kids that uh, invented a, a, a you know the regular. Uh, sauce and the ground beef, and then you put on lettuce and cheese and some, I guess, ranch dressing or sour cream. We called it a taco pizza. So that was, yeah, that, that was a fun amazing. job. It was, yeah. But it was, I mean, I still know my way around the small town because of that job. So I like this though, because, you know, you can, and at, at, how old were you at that point, right before you joined the SEALs? Uh, about 17. 
Yeah. So you, you go through your first 17 years of life and it's not like, oh, you know, it is as it is with some people like, oh, yeah. Oh, he's going to go on. He's got an amazing oh, no. future guaranteed. No, no, it was uh, the, I even when I told people I was joining the military, which was very, very quick when they found out because I became a, I joined the Navy on accident. I wanted to be a Marine. But when they found out I was trying to be a SEAL, there was there was no way because I was never a tough guy growing up. I was um, I, I was more of a, I had a sense of humor, which which eventually helped me do a lot of the things I did, because you, you need to if you lose your sense of humor, if your mind goes, your body's going to follow. But I was, you know, when, when people found out I was trying to be a SEAL, it was one of those things where, well, you're never going to make it that nobody ever makes it to that. Um, and especially <laughs> being from landlocked Montana, where I, I don't think I'd ever been in the ocean. I didn't really I could keep myself alive in the water, but I didn't know any techniques. I didn't really know how to swim when I joined. So it was one of those. Um, <laughs> One one foot at a time, uh, positive attitude will get you uh, a lot further if you just you know just do it that way. So it was because uh, I was I was actually um, playing basketball at Montana Tech, which is the small college in Butte, and um, just had a bad relationship and it was time to leave town. And I just on a I was never going to be in the military. I loved military movies, but I was never going to join. And all of a sudden, um, I joined one day. I love this because I read that uh, you had a bad breakup and you were kind of, you know, like the sad dog who can't let go of the bone. You kept following her around and finally her dad gently escorted <laughs> you out of their house. Yeah, <laughs> so you know were what? not at your strongest. No, Butte, Butte's known again for good food, for a little bit of a, a drink. And I did have a cocktail one night and I decided to walk in to have a word with my ex-girlfriend and her, her dad, who he, he wasn't a, a minor. He actually had a supper job. He used to move houses. And um, oh. but when he woke up and found my, he, I was very, very fortunate. He just escorted me out, <laughs> politely let me know this is not a good idea as opposed to just, <laughs> uh, you know, doing what he could have done to me. But yeah, that was it. And it was, it was more of, um, and I tell people this now, if you have a, if you're having such a bad time, uh, don't do anything drastic, just go on an adventure. And, and for me, it was, um, I can, I can leave tomorrow. I can go and sign up and they'll put me on a plane and I can be, like I said, I wanted to join the Marine Corps, so I'll be in either uh, San Diego Recruit Depot or Paris Island, um, and that was it. And and uh, I went to be a Marine. I thought it was awesome. Like I said, I liked movies. I loved Full Metal Jacket. That just looks cool. And um, you know, I, it looks so hard Marine Corps boot camp that I'll forget about all that dumb stuff back in Butte, Montana. And that was it. And I, I I went to I went in to join the Marine Corps, and the Marine wasn't there. That, the I mean, was. that changed history, honestly, in a way that that moment <laughs> changed history. It certainly changed your, yeah, your no, own it, history it, and your destiny did, at that it moment. Did. And it was just, it was uh, being a naive, either 18 or I think 19 year old. Um, I, the reason I went in to see the Navy guy was because two guys that I knew, uh, Ben and Jim, that wanted to be Marines, that became Marines that were two uh, years older than me. They went through, through uh, high school with my older sister, Chris, who's, who's here now. Um, they always wanted to be Marines. And when they came home, they looked like Marines, but they did tell me a joke. The, they said, you might not know this, but the Marine Corps is actually part of the department of the Navy. It's just the men's department. And that's why I went into the Navy office because I figured he would, if anyone's going to know where the Marine is, he will. And he's the Marine or the Navy recruiter said, why do you want the Marine? I said, I want to be a sniper. And he said, look no further. We have snipers in the Navy. I, you need to become a SEAL first, but after that, no big deal. I'll send you to sniper school, which was kind of the truth, but he left a lot out. And and did not say, are you a good swimmer? No, he didn't even care. It turned Well, I, I was standing over him and I thought, I'm, you know, I'm kind of naive, but this guy's a professional recruiter. Why is he going to lie to me? <laughs> and and he's, just, he's just filling a quota. He did. Honestly, I mean, why wouldn't he? Uh, being a recruiter in Montana, it's, it's a lot easier to recruit for the Army or the Marines than the Navy. So he's just trying to get guys in there and 
I signed and then he actually showed me a video and I was like, well, okay, um, I better <laughs> learn. I have, I have five months before they ship me out. I, I thought I was going to leave that day, but they put me in what's called the delayed entry program. And, and so I had five months to kind of, what I would do with my time is try to get in shape, learn customs and courtesies of uh, the Navy. And then there was a pool where I, at the college where I still had a student ID. And I was like, well, I, I guess I can learn how to swim now. Wow. So you ship off for, for, is it, is it called boot camp or basic training? Yeah. Yeah. It's boot camp in the Navy. And that was in, uh, I went in January 96 to Great Lakes, Illinois, right outside of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And that's where, and that was, is that, that where the 1000 pushups a day were and 1000 sit-ups uh, a day and all no, the craziness? No, no, that, that was, that was just boot camp for Navy. So I'm in there with, um, with guys from all over the country. Uh, and it was, was everyone, it, what I learned the first few days in the Navy, just based just the Navy was, um, it doesn't matter what you look like or where you're from. Um, everyone, everyone's had their first day. If whether you're the CEO of a company or the guy going through Bin Laden's bedroom, we've all had our very first day somewhere and we've all been afraid and that's okay. Um, and, and it was whether, you know, there, there, we had guys in there getting out of, um, South Central, leaving the gangs, guys from Long Island, guys from South Florida and, you know, me from Montana and we're all there to be in the Navy. And, um, yeah, we were, we learned Navy stuff, how to, you know, how to march, how to fold clothes, how to live on a ship. Uh, from there, I, I did need to take a test there to, to, to make it into SEAL training. And from there, they sent me to uh, Coronado. And uh, Coronado is where basic underwater demolition SEAL training is. And that's, that's where the, all the push-ups and all the hard stuff, the uh, 75 to 80% of every class doesn't make it through. Mm. And that's all before Hell Week, where, where you're doing, you're uh, getting uh, tied well, up and thrown into the pool. This is before yeah, Hell Week. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's three phases of SEAL training. The first, I love how they label them. First phase, I want to say, is about nine weeks, but uh, nine to eleven weeks, and then they call it physical training, which means they're just pounding you. And it's a thousand push-ups a day, a thousand sit-ups a day, a thousand flutter kicks a day, tying you up, throwing you into pools, two-mile ocean swims. Uh, there, there, from where we would get beat up, it was a mile to the chow hall, so you get to run six miles a day every day just to eat meals. You know mm. then. Uh, log workouts, hundreds and hundreds of pull-ups. Uh, that's the first part. And I, when I went through, I want to say the fifth week in was hell week and hell week is, um, is w where you wake up on Sunday and don't sleep until Friday. And you're, you're training around the clock, um, over and over, um, uh, carrying heavy boats on their heads. They keep us in groups of seven just to realize if one person in the team doesn't give their effort, it's going to hurt everyone else. It's teaching you teamwork through negative mm. reinforcement. And, uh, well, I, but this is where the mindset came in. When we first got there, we didn't really know, we didn't know what to do because boot camp is very structured. There's people following you around and yelling, you telling them where to go. This one, uh, SEAL training, they, they need your class to already know how many people are there, how many people you're missing and be at the 5 a.m. workout on time. So it's very confusing. And, and they brought us into a room the very first day. And, uh, this instructor said, um, um, I know you've, seen the movies and read some of the books regardless of what you've been told however this course is not impossible uh people graduate look at me i'm living proof so i'll never ask you to do anything impossible but i will make you do something very hard followed by something very hard followed by something very hard day after day after day for eight straight months and that sounds like a lot to get from now to eight months from now but don't think about it that way because that's not how you achieve a long-term goal i want you to do it like this wake up in the morning on time make your bed the right way and then brush your teeth you just started off the day with three little victories. Make it to the 5 a.m. workout on time. And as we're beating you up, don't concentrate on the pain. Think about your next goal in life, which is breakfast. 
After breakfast, make it to lunch. After lunch, make it to dinner. After dinner, do everything you need to do to get back inside that perfectly made bed. And because you took the time in the morning to make your bed the right way, regardless of how bad today was, and it will be bad, tomorrow's a clean slate. Tomorrow's a fresh start. And when you feel like quitting, which you will, do not quit right now. That's your emotion. Quit tomorrow. If you can keep quitting tomorrow, you can do anything in life. And that turned out, I mean, that's great advice for SEAL training, but that's great advice for life. Yes. One meal at a time. And that's it. Yes. And that's how simple it was. And then we got to the SEAL training part. And I, I mean, these instructors, if you just pay attention to the life goals they're giving you. So the hell week I mentioned, you don't go to your bed. You just go through the entire week without sleeping. He said, you're about to go to, right before it started, he said, you're about to go to war for the first time. And the enemy is all your doubts, all your fears, and everyone you know back home that told you, you weren't good enough to do this. Keep your head down. Keep moving forward. No matter what, never quit and you'll be fine. It's kind of like the time heals everything. So that's, that was a mindset of getting through the first part of SEAL training. Hmm. My gosh, because I'm glad you explained that about, you know, the seven guys and how everybody relies on each other. Because one of the things I think when I look at this is I know we need tough guys in our military, but I think, why is this insanity necessary? Why, why must we beat them to hell in order to make them SEALs? I think it's to, to, to the realization that you can convince your body through your mind to do anything. And even, um, and it was, you know, because I went through before 9 11. And it was more of just a, a badge of honor that I went through SEAL training. But then, uh, you know, as I was SEAL Team 2, one of the SEAL teams, and then 9-11, when we were on the mountain, and I'll, I'll, ba- I'll back up in a minute, but I, I do jump around. When we were on the mountain to rescue the lone survivor in 2005, Marcus Luttrell, we'd been awake, you know, we were awake for a few days. We're on top of a mountain in Konar province. And I, I remember looking at one of my guys and saying, this is why training is so hard. Because if we were going to quit right now, where are we going to go? We're just here. And that's it. So that, I mean, that was a mindset that we carried into it years later. But uh, that's mm-hmm. why the training is so important. The hardy, there's a, I'm not a big on cliches, but they do say the more you, the more you sweat in training, the less you bleed in war. Mm. Oh, I, I, I like that. I think that makes sense. I mean, from, I, I know nothing, but just listening to the stories and, and reading them. Um, I, I heard you tell the story about how you just, and I've heard this uh, from others as well. Like Jocko Willink was on saying, you just, the, the key to surviving boot camp and um, buds, the the extra crazy training and and uh, hell week is just you just can't quit. You don't have to be the most extraordinary person. You don't have to be the strongest. You don't have to be the fastest. You just have to be the guy who just yeah. refuses to quit. And you you talked about how there was a one guy in your unit who put quitting in perspective for you when looking at this quitting bell and the helmets of the the guys yeah, the, who had chosen to the, leave. The, the, the famous way, the fam- one of the famous things about SEAL training is we all wear a helmet on our head. And it looks like an old, uh, like an old school army helmet, like maybe from, from the 40s. And the two things on there is on the front and back is your last name. And then on the side is your class number. And, and SEAL training started at one and it went up. My class was 208. And I think they're right around 340 right now. But the, w- there's a bell that all, all you need to do to make them, the only thing easy to do at SEAL training is quit. They make it, they make it easy. They encourage it. Um, all you got to do is go to a bell, ring it three times, and then you put your, your helmet down. There's a line of helmets to go from the bell, and it stretches down the, the, uh, what we call the grinder, which is an outdoor concrete slab. Um, and you just put it in line. It's called the quitter's line. And I, I remember thinking, you know, because people, you know, always ask, did you ever think about quitting? I'm like, yes, every second I thought about quitting. 
but um, there's no way in hell I'm going to ring that bell and, and put a helmet with my father's name on it in a quitter's line. And just little things like that that you can talk, talk yourself through it. And again, it's, it's, it's a lot of mental. It's, it's very physical, but it's a lot of mental. And, and, and some of the mentality is talking yourself through the pain because the pain will end. But your, you know, your, your, your legacy is forever. Your pride is forever. Hmm. I, I, I love that. I mean, I, I think that's, that would do it. Like the shame, you don't want to bring shame on your, on your family name, on yourself. You're in this thing with your brothers, but it's just so physically challenging and mentally challenging that what's the, what are the numbers again? How many people leave versus how many people who make it through? Uh, it's about 75 to 80% uh, fail or quit or get thrown out or, or what there's a, there's a myriad of ways to get out, but the majority of people quit, although, although they'll never admit it. They, uh, most people will say, well, the instructors didn't like me or blah, blah, blah. They'll make up excuses. Um, mm. and I, you know, if you, if you showed up and quit, that's fine. I mean, good on you. You tried, you admitted it was too hard. That's great. Don't, you know, you don't need to make excuses. I, I actually, I had a story when I, I, I deployed before nine 11 on a ship as a Navy SEAL. And I was eating uh, one of the meals in the chow hall. And this, I was sitting there in my camouflage uniform. I had my trident, which is the insignia for Naval Special Warfare. And a, a sailor came up to me and he sat at my table and he said, huh, you know, I went to SEAL training. I, I said, you did? He goes, yeah, I didn't make it. And I said, what happened? He goes, I quit. I was like, really? You, you quit, huh? Why is that? And he goes, I don't know. I lost my hoo I guess. I don't know. <laughs> like, okay, that's, that's fair. I've, oh my I've God, that happened to me too in college. And, and then I had to go confess it to the priest. Um, okay. So, so you, you, know, you, you bet, make you it bet, through. You mentioned, you mentioned Jocko Willing. He, you know, he and I were roommates for a while. Oh, is that right? And, and just it, for the record, uh, he is that tough in person. I'm not surprised. I follow him on yeah, Twitter and you get these, you get these little updates on how it's pictures of his military watch showing four thirty. Yeah. What time it is. Like, Brute force. You know, he's, he's up working out. Oh, and yeah. I'm like, Oh my God, go to sleep. Jocko. I have, I have my followers that say, yeah, I'm doing the Jocko willing workout. I'm like, you realize he's a, like a top 1% of humanity. It, it's going to kill you. He can, and you cannot, sir. <laughs> so you finish it up, you make it through. And then that's not enough. You decide to go to sniper school because, of course, back to your original point, this is what you really wanted to do. And it turns out you were pretty good at that. You you had yeah, pretty good I, aim. I got good at that. And that was, again, just because of uh, hunting in in Montana with my father. We actually graduated because we learned how to hunt together. The same thing, like everything in life. We didn't know how to do any of it. We kind of learned as we went. And so we started buying a long range rifle and I ended up, he ended up buying me a, a 300 Winchester Magnum that I used to hunt elk. And that eventually was the same sniper rifle. And just growing up hunting, I, I was interested in ballistics. Where does a bullet go? I know it doesn't go straight. It goes up and down like a football. What range do we do this? How does the wind affect it? So by the time I got the marksmanship, I'd shot before they did send me to sniper school and that turned into a, just a great school um, for camouflage, for ballistics, for learning how to spot. Um, so I went through that in 1998, I want to say, but so I, I finished SEAL training and sniper school before I even went overseas for the first time. And this is all before 9-11, just to keep in mind that we weren't actively involved in that conflict yet, which would dominate the next decade plus of your life. So you're getting your training, you get married, you have two young children. And what year did you get married? I actually got married in 2004. So I, okay, because... I was deploying, we were dating a little bit and then we got married as I was going through selection for SEAL Team 6, which is the tier one counter-terror unit. But they okay, were, when... my daughter, so my, my daughters were born after 9-11 and they've been, uh, they've known everything. Uh, I don't talk a lot about them, but um, 
um, they, they, they know everything. They've been involved the entire thing. And it's, it's crazy. The, 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 so I have the mindset to get through stuff. And then I have the emotional attachments to everything going on in the world because of my children. Because I mean, you know, like anyone, the, the, the world is your, is your children. That's right. And, and you, you had them as a seal knowing that you would be deployed and that you would be leaving them for long periods of time. And that every time you said goodbye could be the last time that you laid eyes on each other. That's true. Yeah, we did. I, I tell people too the the hardest part of combat because my you know my first started as a seal. It was more of a look at me, I'm cool, and they make movies about us too. We're going to war against Al Qaeda, Iraq, Al Qaeda in Iraq, Al Qaeda in Afghanistan, ISIS. Um, and the hardest part about combat is not getting shot at or having stuff blow up because that's actually very easy. The hardest part is kissing your kids goodbye for what could mm. be the last time. Realizing, looking, looking at your daughter and realizing this could be it. Coming up after this break, we're going to get into the first warriors in the fight against bin Laden. And that is the people who are on flight 93 on the day of 9-11. And to hear Rob talk about it, I can't tell you the number of times I got chills during this interview, not just me, my whole team, many times and tears. And he's just such a, an effective spokesperson for what we've been through as a country. He lived it uh, in a way very few did. So anyway, we'll get into the beginning right after this break. So you knew, you knew after 9-11 that, that you were going to be deployed. I mean, you must have known. And I know I've, I've heard um, you and others make the point that those, those guys on Flight 93, that they were the first warriors in the battle against Al-Qaeda and bin Laden and in the war that would come to dominate our country. Yeah, I, I, we were, I was actually deployed as a sniper in 2001 to Kosovo. If you recall, there was a, um, a lot of bad stuff going on there with ethnic cleansing, and we were bombing and peacekeeping. And uh, uh, they sent us in as snipers—not necessarily snipers, more of observers—to make sure you know we we hide in the hills and make sure nothing was happening in the cities. We weren't we weren't there to shoot; we're there to report. And we got back, so we were deploying out of Germany. We have a unit there down to Kosovo, and I'd gotten back from Kosovo, um, and I was in Germany. We'd got all our gear ready. We're, we're you know a couple months into a deployment. I was sending emails in an operations center when. I heard breaking news behind me and the North Tower had been hit by a plane. And it's one of those kind of exciting, you turn around, well, what is, and they said, yeah, a small plane just hit the North Tower. And I said, well, that's a, that's a really wide tower. That's a huge hole. That's, uh, that's a clear day. What's, that's not an accident. And we're, we're talking about a group of Navy SEALs. And then we saw the South Tower explode. And within 15 seconds, one of the guys said, Osama bin Laden, this is for war. And so now we're, you know, just like everyone, complete chaos. Um, what, what, what are we going to do now? Where do we go? Do they know? And then obviously flight 93 was stuck with me forever. What, 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 um, cause we all know what happened with flight 93. It was heading back to probably the Capitol and the terrorists let the passengers talk to their families. And they told them this is, this is a suicide mission. And what I love about 90, not love, but just what gives me goosebumps is they, they were the first Americans to attack, to fight Al Qaeda. And they did it because they voted, which is the backbone of this society they voted and then they fought and that's part of the reason the the reason that we you know especially up to the mission to kill bin laden where we knew we were going to die too but we're doing it for them type thing um and it's mm -hmm. you know th that was where we went from you know the uh, my friend charlie sheen and that cool movie navy seals to okay now we're going to the mountains and we're fighting these guys and we're going to find them and we're going to kill them i i got the chills too when you said that i whenever i think about flight 93 and when my kids are old enough we're going to go there and we're going to see the memorial um I, it makes me proud to be an American. I mean, the fact that these regular civilians 
who had not picked up arms, had not planned on fighting, found a way to bring that plane down and to to protect America. I mean, think about think about the emotional devastation, not to mention the loss of life we would have suffered if they had if they had dropped that plane into the Capitol, into the U.S. Into the Capitol. Capitol. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. And just think about, too, these are these are uh, families going on vacation, business people going to the West Coast. They're not tactically savvy people, but they thought of what can we use? They they're taking off belts, boiling water in the galley. Like they're thinking like warriors. They, I'm just I again, I, I can't think about them and not have a tear in my eye and get goosebumps. No, oh, they it's it, I think they'd be so honored to know somebody like Todd Beamer that in any way they inspired you, you know, because you you picked oh, yeah. up that same mission and how seal missions. Are they all classified? That's what I read. They're all classified. Um, not really. Uh, they, they, they fall under a certain bla- uh, uh, blanket of classification, but there are very, very few that, uh, well, you saw, I mean, the most secretive mission given a different authority other than the military was all over the internet that night, which is the Bin Laden raid. Yes. So most of the, yes, most of, of the missions that, that, that happened, um, uh, they don't take, it's very, very hard to keep toothpaste in the tube when they want to, people want to say what, what other people did. And, and, you know, President Biden, then Vice President Biden got some, some flack for saying SEAL Team 6. And people have asked me, what do you think about that? And I said, you know what? I don't have a problem with that because he's letting our enemies know it doesn't matter where you are. We will find you and we will send people to get you. And that's, that's cool with me. That's, that was the whole reason. People don't even know this. They, they always ask, why was it called SEAL Team 6? The, way they, the reason that Richard Marcinko, who was the commander that founded SEAL Team 6, named it SEAL Team 6 is because at the time we had SEAL Team 1 and SEAL Team 2. And he invented SEAL Team 6 because the Russians would say, okay, there's one, two, and six. Where the hell are three, four, and five? Uh, I like that. I did not <laughs> yeah. know that. Oh, yeah. This is usually the point where I, I, I tap my forehead and say, not just a hat rack. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. I did not know that either. Well, the reason I ask is I, I heard that they're, that they're classified, or at least many of them are. But then I thought, how many SEALs are involved in, in three missions that wind up major motion pictures like you have been? Yeah, right. So let's I, just let's well, that, I, obviously we want I want to do, you know, what happened with bin Laden. But can we just start because you mentioned Marcus yeah. Luttrell and that that turned into the Lone Survivor, a movie back in June of 2005. Can, can you just tell us how did you get involved in that? And what did you do in, in that? Well, I, have, I, I happen. My my wife actually calls me the the luckiest unlucky man in the world it always seems like i'm in a predicament but i get out of it for some weird reason <laughs> and so i just i've just been i've been there at the right place right time and, and i tell people that too now just one of my favorite sayings is, is wherever you are be there meaning yeah. it could happen right now the stuff you worry about rarely happens it's it's not it's like again i don't mean to jump all over it's like a year or so ago we're thinking about the South Carolina primaries. Who's going to be the, is it going to be Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders? We're worried about the election. Then Thursday night, we get hit with a pandemic. You didn't see it coming. Mm. But if you're there, you know, stuff can happen. So I just happened to be in Afghanistan and uh, a SEAL team, not six, a different team wanted to, SEAL team 10 and then SEAL delivery vehicle team two. They wanted to insert their snipers into um, the Korangal Valley, which is in the Konar province, to find a terrorist named Ahmad Shah. Uh, they flew in there as in the movie Lone Survivor. We weren't involved with that. I was actually, I was living in a, in Jalalabad, Afghanistan, which is a, another, another completely different story. But I did see some of the guys at the airfield that we actually, some of us rode motorcycles out to the airfield to see them. They told us what was happening. And, you know, we, 
had words with them and then we left and helped them have a good fight. And we went back to our, what we call the safe house. Um, the sun came up and then one of the army guys came in and said, Hey, uh, your, your boys just got hit really, really hard that we lost the helicopter. And so we were briefed on the story that, uh, the, the four snipers did get hit. Uh, three of them were killed. They sent in two helicopters to get them. One helicopter turbine three, three was shot down. It killed, I want to say, uh, 18 soldiers. Some of my friends that I just saw the night before were on that. And then they told us now we're missing snipers. We have a helicopter down. You guys need to go up there and, uh, figure it out, but we're not going to fly you because they're shooting helicopters down, figure it out. And so we had to walk around and, and gather. It wasn't, it wasn't like the base of Jalalabad that it is now. It was ragtag people here and there. So we gathered, um, anyone we could find Marines. We had Rangers, uh, Green Berets, Air Force people. And uh, we actually walked into this tent and said, there was like, I think 20 Rangers in there. And we said, Hey, uh, here's the situation. I need at least five volunteers. And all 20 dudes got up and they said, it normally takes us 10 minutes to get ready, but we'll be outside in five. And everyone went with us and we, we drove as far as we could. And then we hiked um, when we could no longer uh, drive. And we hiked up the mountain. We did run into um, some Taliban up there. Some of my guys got to the crash site. No one survived. And a couple of days later, we were able to pinpoint where Marcus Luttrell was, went back up the hill. Um, some, some rangers, I think, flew in in helicopters and did pull him out. Big team effort. I, I makes me proud to be part of that coalition. Just just seeing, you know, being a Navy SEAL Team Six operator, but looking at Marines, thinking, God, that guy is cool. Look at that Marine just out here doing his thing. Um, so we got Marcus. Uh, it, was a, it was a tragic time, but we did get Marcus out, and he's a he's a good friend of mine. Uh, just the epitome of what it is to have a will to live, because he was everything. He was down to um, his his back was broken. He'd broken. He'd been shot. Had shrapnel, and I think I want to say his pants had been blown off by a, an RPG, which just to get in your mentality, imagine being by yourself, you're that thirsty, everyone's trying to kill you and you don't have pants. I mean, where do you get morale? Where do, how don't you just give up? And he didn't. And he's alive now. How, and he's, how, how long was he there? Um, three or four days he was, he was out there. He did get picked up by some villagers, which says a lot about the villagers too. They have a, 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 an ancient, uh, uh, not a saying, but a way of life called Pashtun Wali where if you ask them for help, they will, they will die. They'll fight to their last man to help you. And he asked for help and they helped him. It's incredible. Wow. Uh, so that was the first of so many. And let's flash forward to April of 2009. It was your birthday, April yes. 10th. You tell us where you were when you got a message about something that was, was breaking that you had to handle. It, it was my daughter's, uh, it was good Friday, April 10th, my birthday. And I was at my daughter's, uh, her preschool for an Easter tea party. They're going to have a, a quick Easter tea party. <laughs> the parents come in, we give them cookies and stuff. And then we stand around to have them sip tea. And we, I was bringing my, I had a pink plate and I'm bringing my daughter cupcakes <laughs> and stuff. And I'm walking over to her and she, um, I got a message the, and said that a guy by the name of captain Richard Phillips had been taken by Somali pirates and they're calling my team to go get him now. And, and by now they mean now. And so there you are at the little tea party with the pink plate, this trained SEAL sniper. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. You know, it's like the SEALs, they're just like us. Um, and and tell us where you were 15 hours and 46 minutes later. Yeah, 15 hours and 46 minutes later, we had a full head count of Navy SEALs in the Indian Ocean. And we had uh, our boats, all the guys. And a day and a half later on Easter Sunday, we rescued Richard Phillips with some shots from our snipers. And we did that because we were prepared. And that says something about, I was not one of the shooters on that mission. 
but we didn't know what we were going to do anyway. On the flight over, we had, you know, 15 hours to plan. We, we thought we thought of anything, everything. We never thought of in, in the history of SEAL Team 6, um, a fully engulfed orange lifeboat being towed by a Navy destroyer. So on the flight over, we're, we told everyone. That wait, wait, the, but, the, but let, me, let me let me pause you there just because I want to get the audience up to speed because it's been a while yeah. since that, that happened. Uh, and there was a movie about this, too. But so what happened was there was um, in the Indian Ocean uh, off the coast of Somalia, which is on the northeast coast of Africa, uh, they this group of pirates, Somali pirates had had captured the Maersk, right? Was it the Maersk? The Maersk, and, Alabama. Uh, the Marisk, Alabama, which is a U.S. cargo ship. Uh, I'm trying to remember my facts. It's a, it's, it's, it's a cargo ship. Yeah, it's from it's from Virginia. Yes. Okay, so it's ours. So we got to go help our guys out. We got to defend it, and we're not going to let it be taken by a bunch of pirates. And then this sort of lifeboat, this smaller, it, to me, the boat that they wound up in, uh, which was off, it wasn't the actual Marisk. It was like this sort of lifeboat off of it. Looks just like the little tugboat you get for your kids and you put in the bathtub. I mean, it looked a lot like that thing. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. they've got Captain Phillips on it. They've got our American, Captain Richard Phillips, on it. He's their hostage. And that's when the SEALs came in. So I don't know. Right. I'm amazed that you're on the airplane over there. And you don't, I, I mean, in my mind, there's some admiral who's like, this is exactly what you're going to do when we get there. That didn't, no, that's no, not no. how they, it went down. They, the military was really good about that. It's, and it's, I mean, the Navy and the Army, as soon as we get there, the uh, not only the captain of the ships, there were three ships there. But even the admiral, who was the, the battle group commander, gave us tactical authority. And they, they don't want to plan the mission. They want us to plan it. Uh, so we, we had everybody come up with a plan because we, we can't necessarily just rush the boat because there's only a very small entrance. And if you know, one guy can't get through, he kills, it only takes a second to kill him. Um, we, you know, we, do we ram it with one of our speedboats? How do we do So we came up with all these different plans. We narrowed them down to five great plans. Everything to, I mean, we didn't go there to kill them. We went there to, to get the hostage. So if it comes to a negotiation, great. And it might work that way because these are not necessarily terrorists. They're um, uh, criminals. And maybe they just want to go home too. We don't know. But we put our snipers down to watch them. But how did, first of all, how did you have, I understand how the snipers got there and the helicopters, but how, where, where did the speedboats come from? No, no, we jumped everything out. We, took, we flew from Virginia Beach in two airplanes and had two boats per airplane and we jumped. We jumped the boats out, and then we jumped out all of us. When you say so you the, jumped the boats out, what is that? You dumped them out of the plane? No, no, we yeah, we dropped them. They had four parachutes each. We have we when 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 it comes to a national mission like that, there are so many people from the sniper back all the way back to the forklift driver who puts the boats on the plane to the parachute riggers who pack the shoes, make sure the boats are rigged so then we throw them out. The parachutes open to you know the administrative administrative people making sure our wills and powers of attorney are in order. Like there's a, oh. there's a, such a huge team behind all of this. That we're just the end. I always, I always tell people that we're kind of like, um, we're kind of like salesmen. There's a huge company behind us putting the buttons on the radio, making sure we have the product. And we're just a salesman to go to the door, except the problem with us is uh, the customer's always wrong. <laughs> That's a great point. <laughs> Wait a minute. So not to be too naive, but you're telling me that, like, so you jumped out of, you jumped out of the helicopter 15 hours. No, no, we jumped, we jumped out later. of uh, air, air, airplane. Okay. Jumped out of an airplane and you have your gun on you. I mean, this is a really dumb question. I know it like the guns can go in the ocean. They still work. Like you have to hold yeah, on to it while you jump. How does that work? The guns will work. We do have different uh, types of uh, bags and stuff to wrap them up in if we need to. But yeah, you can get a gun. It, it'll be fine. The, the guns that we use are great. Uh, but, but, you know, if you're jumping out of a plane into the ocean, everything that you think you need better be on your body because 
you know, if you keep it in the boat, the boat might, the chutes might not open. Whenever you do anything, Murphy shows up, Murphy's law, and something's going to go bad. So yeah, everything that we need is, is it's on us. And were the, the seas boats go rough? Out. Was there any fear no, about the, jumping out of the airplane? Oh, and no, did, no, like, we, we, no, we, we jumped. I have over a thousand jumps uh, in training. It's, it's, it's second nature to us. It's, we, oh. we do that all the time. It wasn't, no, but that, that's the fun part. Leaving the plane. Once, oh my once your feet hit the, once your feet hit the water, that's when the work starts. Oh, wow. So is, I mean, just again, a technical question, but is there any problem collecting all the guys and getting them into the boats? Are you that accurate in your jumps that you, you land near yeah, the boat we, and you can get right in? Well, it, yeah, I was, I was actually the, what's called the lead jumper. So I'm in the first plane, I jump out and then I need to get everyone in, in a line. It's called a stack. And so my job is to find the, the four boats that jumped out and then lead everyone into them, go, uh, you know, take some turns, do an upwind landing so we can slow down and put everyone next to the boats. But we, we have these, um, we call them training stars. If, if you train all the time, but never do it, you, there's stuff you're doing in training. You don't realize we, we've never done this ever in, in the history of CLT six. This is the first time ever, but we trained on it a lot. But when we're training, it's off the coast of Virginia or North Carolina. And there are safety boats in the water that you can see that are mm-hmm. like they spin in circles, kind of mark the drop zone. When you're in the Indian ocean, you, there's no safety boats. I couldn't find the boats at first. And Whoa. me not be as, as a lead jumper, not being able to find them, I need to act like I can see them because everyone behind me, all 100 jumpers behind me, panicking is not going to help. I need to pretend I found them until I really find them. God oh help us. Because if I, if I don't, then we have a bunch of guys lost in the Indian Ocean. But, How um, did you find them? Um, well, believe it or not, it was, it was a daytime jump. Because um, in the movies, they do nighttime jumps. I always tell people there's no reason to jump at night into the ocean because if you get lost you're lost forever uh, so just go 50 miles away and jump where they can't see it um but it turned out the sun the sun was shining on the ocean and the boats were in the sunshine once i i turned to my left and then started doing what we call a downward leg i spotted them and after i you know took a nice deep breath and got the color back on my face i brought everybody into their boats all right so as long as i'm asking my dumb question let me ask one of no, my kids those are, those, are, those are great questions this one's not great but i but my, my children are gonna be glad i asked it would you ever worry about sharks that's funny is um, we all think about it. And one of my new hobbies recently has been diving without cages with sharks just to prove my, to myself they're actually sharks are sharks are polite predators. <laughs> but uh, they, they, people always tend to think about I think the movie Jaws, Peter Benchley's Jaws ruined everybody's yep. ocean experience. Because if totally. you've been in the ocean, if you've been in the ocean, you have had a very positive encounter with a shark. You just don't realize it. You're not on the menu. Oh. But um, yeah, but, okay. but Indian Ocean is not bad. They have, they have bulls, or not bulls, but um, whale sharks, which are harmless. I didn't see, I might have seen one, but that's no big deal. I've, but I have been in the water with, uh, over the course of four days recently off Isla Guadalupe, I was in the water with 31 different great whites, maybe 33. Great whites? I mean, I've done yeah, the, uh, the black reef tip, <laughs> you know, shark thing out in, uh, I, I don't know, I was at Bora Bora or wherever. And uh, they, they seemed respectful of the little anchor line I was holding on to, but I would yeah, get they, in with great whites. We, we did that. And then we, we, that was in Mexico. And then we actually went out to Bimini and did, were free diving with, uh, with uh, tigers. And tigers are funny. These sharks actually all have different personalities. Like the great whites, very uh, polite and curious. Um, like a, a great hammerhead is, is uh, very smart. The the reef sharks are like puppies. The bull sharks are mean. I'll give them that. But then like the, the tiger sharks are 
They're like clumsy. It's almost like they've been drinking a little. And they just want to play with you. It's funny. It's really funny. Oh, wait. So just so I know, you know, out of curiosity, what, what does a bull shark look like? Just just in case. Uh, they're just, they're, they look angry. They're just mean. <laughs> and they're, they're, and they, they give other sharks a bad rap because they're the ones that have a lot of adrenaline. They'll just bite you because they're angry. They're the ones that bite oh. people in like three feet of water. I mean, I've given them a bad name here too. They're just, they're just the mean, the mean one that shouldn't. Abby, could you just be. Google bull sharks, coast of New Jersey, just so I, just so I can go in the ocean no, this summer they're, with some. They're, they're not, they're not in, uh, they're not in New Jersey. Okay. Excellent. Are you just saying that the way I say that to my children? No, 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 I'm, I'm actually going, I'm, I'm, I'm going to Cape Cod very soon. There's a ton of great whites up there and I still swim there. Okay. I, I mean, I, we've had no choice but to just lie. We're like, no, there's no sharks. No, the sharks don't come in this, this shallow. They, they won't come into you know, uh-huh. this. Meanwhile, well, it's like, I, that's, I, they love to come into the shallow water. <laughs> I have a great joke. People will say, um, well, how do you know there's sharks in the water? And I say, well, I have a very scientific test that I do. I get a teaspoon from my kitchen and I walk down to the water. I dip in the water and I taste it. And if it tastes like salt, there's sharks out there. <laughs> this is somehow not reassuring to me. Uh, okay. So you guys get, you get Captain Phillips. It's a huge deal. It's a huge win for the United States, for our military, for yep. the SEALs, for you, all everybody. And I would imagine at that point, you're thinking, this is the biggest mission I've ever been on. This is like, this is it. This is that the was, apex yep. of my military career. And that was the same group, most of the same group on the Bin Laden raid a year later, a year or so later. Uh, and what, what I love about that movie, Captain Phillips, is that at the end of the movie, when the snipers take their shots, what you see them do is they, they, they put up their bipods, which are the, the stabilization platforms, and then they leave. They don't say a word. And it just made Navy SEALs look cool. And that's pretty much what it was. Um, I remember one of my one of my friends that was actually in my wedding was the lead sniper, and I saw him after he did that, and I said, "Do you realize you just did the most historically significant thing in the history of the SEAL teams?" And his response was, "Yeah, uh, can we go home now?" That was it. It doesn't. You know, that's, I, that's I would have been like, "Go on." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm listening. <laughs> right. But yeah, that was so, that was it, and, and, and we figured that yeah, it, it will not get bigger than this. No, right. How could you possibly think it would? And by the way, just just not for nothing, but uh, my old agent at CAA, Matt Del Piano, was the guy who saw that story and said, that's got to be a movie. And he was he was the guy who first saw, thought of that and got and bought the rights and made it happen. But they did it. OK, so great job. Great job with the movie. A couple years later. Yeah. So now everybody who hasn't seen it has to see see Lone Survivor. And um, was the Captain Phillips movie called Captain Phillips? I'm trying to remember. Captain Phillips. Yep. OK, with with Tom Hanks. Um, yes. And then we flash forward to. May 2011. By this point, you've been going off to fight wars for six years. So where were you when you got the call something was about to happen? We had just finished another deployment to Afghanistan, and I was running different stations out of uh, Jalalabad, where I had been for the Marcus Luttrell thing, but now they'd built it up. And we had different, we're doing, we're trying to do cross-border intelligence for high-value targets. Um, we, nothing was mentioned there. And we got back from that deployment. We had a few weeks of leave with our families because we just got back from war. And I took my team to Miami for a training trip where we could hopefully do some diving, but also get some good fellowship camaraderie, if you will. And, um, we were down there after a night of training and we were at happy hour on the beach. And we got a call that a few of us needed to go back to Virginia tonight. And we weren't sure exactly what why they wouldn't tell us and we flew up there so some of the guys from miami went up there a couple guys from another team from like out in nevada out in arizona doing different training were there and they brought like 28 of us into a room and they said uh now first of all guys this is not a drill this is real we found a thing and this thing is in a house 
and this house is in a bowl between some mountains. These mountains are in a country. And you guys are going to go fly in to this house. You're going to get this thing and you're going to bring it back to us. And we said, well, okay, what's the thing? Well, we can't tell you. Okay. Um, where's the house? Can't tell you. What country? Can't tell you. How are we getting there? We can't tell you. Uh, how much air support? And they said, none. We're like, okay, good. That's an answer. So we know there's no air support. And um, they said, you know, they said, well, we, and you can't, we're not bringing any uh, support, meaning um, n- not support, but uh, Air Force pararescue men who are combat surgeons or uh, combat controllers, Air Force who are radio ma- or master radio guys. It's only SEALs. So if you used to know how to do medic- medical stuff, bring it. If you know how to use a radio, bring it. And we assumed that we were going into Libya for Qaddafi because the Arab Spring had just started in Tunisia, worked its way over to Egypt, into mm, Libya. That's right. And Qaddafi, we assume they found Qaddafi, and we're just going to go grab him, bring him back, and maybe he'll get debriefed by intelligence agencies or something. So we're getting our gear ready for a couple of days, and on Friday they said, okay, go home, be with your kids, come back on Sunday, we're going to drive you somewhere, and we're going to read you in on what's happening. And we're like, okay, cool. Who's going to be at the read-in? And they said, probably... The vice president, the secretary of defense, the secretary of the Navy, blah, blah, blah. Oh. Like, oh my God. And then they're going, <laughs> they're going down the list. They're going down the list and they said, somebody, somebody, CTC pad, blah, 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 blah. Now, I didn't say anything, but CTC pad is a counter terror desk, CIA, Pakistan, Afghanistan. And so we went home, saw the kids, came back on, on, on Sunday, and we're driving down to a place in North Carolina. And I was, I told my boss next to me, uh, there's four of us in a van. I said, man, this, this isn't Qaddafi. They found Bin Laden. And he said, that's exactly what I was thinking. We talked back and forth. We got to a spot, um, went in, there was armed guards. They locked the doors. And um, the woman that found Bin Laden was there. We'd never met her before. And the commanding the officer. The CIA she, analyst. Yep. Okay. And she's real. She's a real person. And another movie. Of, that that, that yeah, movie was Zero movie. Dark Thirty. They made about her. Yeah. It's so crazy. You've been involved in a lot. Okay. So, so she yeah. comes in. And did you know and, her? Well, did you know this is the no, woman? No idea who they were. And, and to be fair, it was actually a team of maybe three women. She was the she was the lead one that the, the movie was about. But there was a it was yeah. mostly women that found Bin Laden, which I think is just cool. Um, it is cool. And, it's sort uh, of like the the hidden figures, you know. It's like it, it is no, sure, totally right. Totally. Like, like I'm saying earlier, you don't know who's behind the scenes, and they deserve all the credit. But um, the the commanding officer of uh, SEAL Team Six came up, and and we got a room full of very experienced Navy SEALs, and he said. The reason you guys are here is this is as close as we've ever been to Osama bin Laden. And uh, we look around the room and it wasn't, there was no high fives or cheers. It was professionals. And we said, okay, um, can we go right now? And they, he said, no, here's why. And then the woman that found bin Laden started briefing us. She was actually the first person I'd ever heard to say the word Abbottabad. And I remember yeah. hearing the word Abbottabad come out of her mouth. And I thought, I remember thinking, this is serious. Like I've never heard that. And tell people where that, where that was. This uh, so Abbottabad, Pakistan is a resort town north of uh, Islamabad, Pakistan. And she kept saying it. And we'd been on targets before, but no one had ever mentioned a city I'd never heard of. And it's like, this is legit. And she explained in depth how she found him to the point where we're like, okay, look, I don't need to know all this. You're way smarter than me. It's obvious. Just let me have a sledgehammer and a gun. Point me in the direction. I'll trust you. <laughs> More chills coming up in about 60 seconds as we get into what actually happened on the Bin Laden compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan, that fateful day, uh, overnight, May 1st into May 2nd, 2011.
first of all, were you surprised she said Pakistan? You know, because I, I, I people had been surmising, but, you know, we were fighting the war in Afghanistan. That's where he had been. And was that a surprise to you? No, not at all. We we kind of knew he was in Pakistan. I assumed he was in Canada, Pakistan with the like the Haqqani network and where uh, Iman yeah. Azawahiri I, I mean, I is right now. Like that's where they are. But they kept him in, in the bottom edge because it was out of the way. Um, and, okay. and they had been they had been doing counterintelligence against Al Qaeda. They we made up the cave stuff with the dialysis machine because oh. our, our intel people knew that if if someone came in selling intelligence, it was definitely Bin Laden. I saw him; he had a dialysis machine. The intelligence oh. analysts would be thinking, "No, you're lying because we made that up. He doesn't have dialysis." I didn't know that. I love. I think the, I'm the telling tactics you, smart are so people. fascinating. <laughs> no, wait. I want to. I want to jump in and say that Admiral McRaven, who it was his official title. Head of special ops, like was he the? He was the he was the commander of uh, uh, Joint Special Operations Command, JSOC. So he okay, ran the so whole he, thing. He's the one that sold it to President Obama. So he was. He's a four star admiral. He, at the time, he I think he was a three star, but I mean, okay. he's getting his four star. There was never a doubt. Like the second he graduated, he he was going to be a four star admiral. There's no. This doubt guy's about crazy it. good. Like if you want to feel good about America, go listen to anything that Admiral McRaven has said or written. So and and, and yeah. here is. Here is his description of, of this moment you're telling us about that. He said, and I'm quoting now, there were two commanders that I trusted implicitly for a mission like this. And one of them, a Navy SEAL commander and his team had just gotten back from Afghanistan and were all on leave. That's you. Uh, you're one of those guys. I recalled the squadron and frankly, these were not happy campers. I've got them in this classroom and I can see the body language. Then a CIA officer comes out and hands out some non-disclosure statements. Then the next agency officer comes out and briefs the target, Osama bin Laden. Oh, I mean, it just must have been, it must have been such a moment when you, I mean, this is what it's about. We're trying to get this guy. And now you realize you are one of the chosen to, to actually do it. Why, why do you think you were, why do you think you got that tap on the shoulder? There were, again, um, luck, uh, right place, right time. There there were a number of people who could have done it from different services. It just so happened that we, we would give off the, the smallest footprint training because we needed to train to prove to the powers that be that we could go in there. Uh, even President Obama said when, when we were done, uh, I was never 100% convinced that Osama bin Laden was there. But after seeing you, I was convinced you guys could go in, find out and get out. And, and so we were training we needed to go train for a few weeks to prove to people that we could do it. And Wait, because, so you think the SEALs were chosen? Because, I mean, I'm thinking this is not a water situation, right? So they, why, no. why did they use the SEALs? And, like, what, what was it? It was your small footprint? We'd been, no, we, well, we'd been training in Afghanistan. and uh, Sorry, we'd been at war in Afghanistan for the longest time. Our Army counterparts, the Tier 1, tier one unit there had been Iraq mostly, and we were just most, we, we were so familiar with the, the environment. That we, that mm-hmm. we were just a, we were the, the natural call for it. Plus, our commanders were so good at putting senior SEAL officers and senior enlisted off, uh, senior enlisted SEALs in the D.C. area, working in certain places. Uh, we had uh, uh, officers at the White House, the National Security Council, the Pentagon, just so when they needed uh, like a little back rub, saying, "Hey, you've seen us, we'll, we'll do this, we're good." They they would were been working on it for years. They've been prepping for this mm-hmm. forever, and it just it just so happened that we were because we like I said, we were on a training trip. It was natural for the people in Virginia Beach, which is a small community, to see this one squadron leaving to train. So it wouldn't be out of the ordinary. If, if the team that was there, 
started training, people would say, well, what are they training for? If the team that was in Afghanistan stopped going to war and started training, well, what are they training for? We were supposed mm-hmm. to be training, so no one would notice that we were out of town training. We're just training for the Bin Laden raid. And that, they just oh, picked okay. us because we were out of the group that got picked. We were the most senior. Okay. All right. So McRaven is the guy who, who gave Obama the options once the CIA had located what, where they thought Osama Bin Laden was. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they, they, so what I, what I heard McRaven say and what I've read is that they gave Obama four options. They said, McRaven and his team said, you got, you got four options. You could do a B-2 bomber to blast the whole compound. You could do a drone strike. You could use commando forces or you could use the SEALs. And Obama chose the SEALs on McRaven's recommendation. McRaven says, and quoting again, we were out there for several days rehearsing all aspects of the, of the mission. Then once we were through, I had one more meeting with the president and he asked me, can you do this? And I said, sir, we can. I'm confident we can do this. And thus began Operation Neptune Spear, which he named in a tip of the hat understanding if you guys got him, it would be one of the biggest things we've ever done uh, to the, the history of the SEALs. Uh, and some symbolism that he was looking at with respect to the spear. Can you can you explain that? Um, that was for the spear carried by King Neptune, and uh, who rules the seas. And because we're Navy SEALs, we thought we would pay homage to uh, King Neptune. So Neptune spear, and it just sounds cool. And you know, Bill McRaven came up with it. And uh, you know, regardless of any beliefs or politics, I will follow Admiral McRaven to hell. And I uh, just <laughs> love you know he came up with it. It's just a brilliant, brilliant. Everything just worked out well. Like he said, the ground force commander that he picked, I, I've known for many, many years. And he had always been the guy that should be the guy that leads the mission on the ground. Admiral McRaven was the guy that should have overall led the mission. And just to be a part of it was, um, you know, it's one of those, this is, this is why we're here, guys. This is what we're doing. They're, they're going to pick us. We're going to go. It was just, Where uh, was McRaven of, when, the, when the mission was carried out? Well, we, we all flew to Jalalabad, Afghanistan, the same place that I, for some reason, it's entwined in my history. Uh, um, we're, we're over there at, at one of our tactical operations centers. We're waiting on the word from president Obama. And uh, so we were just kind of there, um, waiting for the green light. And we had 48 hours to do it. Two cycles of, of zero illumination was completely dark. And that's when we're going to go. And, um, once we got the green light, we were actually, before we left, we, we could have left Saturday. They decided not to, because the correspondence dinner was happening. We don't need the cabinet getting up and leaving because the press is there. <laughs> thumbs up. So we went on Sunday. And before we left, we're in a hangar, and Admiral McRae has kind of given us our final talking to before we, we're actually getting ready to get on the helicopters. And he said, uh, uh, you know, last night, guys, I watched my favorite movie, uh, Hoosiers. And at the end of the movie, when that small-town basketball team is playing in that huge arena for the Indiana State Championship, they walk in and awe. They've never left their hometown. They're looking around this huge arena. And coach had uh, the smallest guy on the team get on the shoulders, the largest guy on the team, and pull out a tape measure. And he said, what's the measurement from the, the rim to the floor? And he mm, said, 10 feet, same. coach. What's the, what's the measurement from the back of the rim to the free throw line? Go 15 feet, coach. And he said, these are the same measurements as your gym in Old Hickory. It's just a bigger audience. And, and he looked at us and go, he said, guys, you do this every single night. It's just a bigger audience. And so we're leaving. And I remember I talked to Admiral McRaven. I said, Admiral, you're so busy with this. I seriously doubt you watched Hoosiers last night, but I got to tell you, if you were, you were, you were born to give that speech right now. Oh, wow. Again, chills. 
He said what worried him most was the unknown, whether the whole place would be booby trapped, as we had seen some of these Taliban and Al Qaeda fighters do before at the compounds holding important, you know, fighters, Al Qaeda, you know, it's always the number three guy of Al Qaeda who gets killed. They, they would booby trap their compounds. And so the whole place would, would blow up. He said, McRaven, he was confident you guys could get past Pakistani integrated air defense. You were in these uh, these two helicopters were they Black Hawk helicopters, right? That had been modified to be extra stealthy. They, yeah, they they had been modified by again people people smarter than me, and uh, after seeing them, people probably smarter than this planet. <laughs> I don't know how they did it, but <laughs> so he yeah, knew that, that they a, could get past the Pakistani uh, air defense, and that you guys he could get you he could get you to the compound. But nobody was a hundred percent sure. I mean, the CIA analysts believed Bin Laden was there, but nobody knew. And so you you wrote in your book about the moonless night, the 90 minute flight on a moonless night from your base in Afghanistan to the compound in Pakistan, 162 miles away. And that I mean, that 90 minutes must be seared in your memory. Yeah. Walk us through well, what you were doing. Well, we, we see they were convinced that we could get past the air defense, but they weren't on the plane. We were. So we could get shot down at any second and not even be angry about it because we're invading a sovereign nation. The house is going to blow up. When we get there, if anyone's going to martyr himself at Bin Laden, there will be a gunfight when we get there. If we run out of fuel, we're going to end our short lives either in a gunfight with the Pakistani police or we're going to die in Pakistani prison. It's, it's, it's a one-way mission to the point that before we left, this is a very important uh, emotional part. Before we left, I had one of my guys say, because um, we accepted death. That's it. We're, we're going to die. He said, don't take this the wrong way because I'm 100% going. Don't worry about that. I'm going. I just need to say it out loud. If we know we're going to die, why are we going? And and so we had a conversation and we had a conversation. We said, okay, well, we're not going after bin Laden for the fame or the reward um, or the bravado. We are going after Osama bin Laden for the single mom who dropped her kids off at elementary school on a Tuesday. And 45 minutes later, she jumped to her death out of a skyscraper because that <sighs> was a better alternative than whatever the hell was going on inside at 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit. And her last gesture of human decency was holding her skirt as she jumped out of a building and murdered herself. She was never supposed to be in the fight. We're supposed to be in the fight. That's why we're going. Oh, my God. Dying. Abby and I both have tears in our eyes. Yeah. It's incredible. But 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 you're right. That's the perspective on it. Yeah. And it was, and we talked about flight 93. We talked about Todd Beamer. We talked about the people in the Pentagon who went to work and never came back. And so for us, that made it easier because now with the acceptance of death, there is no fear. But just to ask you prior to that moment, I understand you had written goodbye letters to your kids. Yeah, I did. But um, the daughter that I just FaceTimed a few minutes ago, um, she was, I, I, she was always there. I always said goodbye to her, but she was seven when I said goodbye to her on this one, but the letter I wrote, to, I wrote letters to everybody, but the letter I wrote to her was not to the seven-year-old. It was to the 27-year-old explaining, I'm really sorry. I missed your wedding. I know you're beautiful. Thanks for taking care of your sisters and your mom. What we did was noble explaining the mission, you know, to <sighs> someone eventually that will read it. And then, and you know, tears hitting the page, not even fun to think about now. Um, and then, but it was, it was, it was, it was one of those moments in time that's bigger than me. It's like the Braveheart thing. You know, we could, I could pull myself off this mission anytime I wanted to and live. But, you know, when I'm dying at 95 years old on my deathbed, would I give every single day back for that one yeah. night? Yeah. And so we knew it. And, and we, 
we went and, and um, even with my father, like I, I would call him on missions when I was in Iraq or wherever, some in Afghanistan. And he would always say, man, I wish I was going with you. And, and I said, mm-hmm. I know, Dad, I wish you were, too. And on this one, I called him and, and said, and he didn't know where I was. And he said, I wish I was going with you. And I said, don't worry, Dad, I'm with some really good guys. Mm-hmm. And your poor mom, I'm sure, was worried, as she always had been. You're off there. I know you'd won a silver star already. And you were like, don't worry, Mom, I, I won't win any more silver stars. Because once you heard at the, at the commemoration what, or at the, at the medal ceremony what you had done, she was like, oh, my God, what? And you yeah, promised yeah. no more silver stars. I'll never get another silver star, I promise. So you're but, on yeah, the, so you're the, on so the, so the flight the over there, we get, we have 90 minutes. and you're counting. Tell us, talk I'm about counting. the counting well, and, and well, what uh, that led to. Everybody there realized that if, if you're worrying about, and this is good advice again for life, if you're worrying about something that your worry can't affect, stop worrying. It's, you're wasting your energy. So us totally. worrying about a missile right now isn't going to stop the missile. So stop wasting it. So I'm looking around. Some guys actually put in their uh, their earbuds and fell asleep. And I, oh. I'm looking at my friend sleeping. And I, I remember looking at some of my best friends. thinking, You are asleep literally on the ride to Osama bin Laden's house. You have ice in your veins. Um, what I was doing, though, is I learned as a sniper was to count. When you're looking through uh, binoculars or a spotting scope and you're bored, just count and change the cadence. You know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Just count to a thousand and start backtracking. Remember counting, you know, to keep your mind occupied. And I was counting. And uh, it's a 90-minute flight. And we have 80 minutes basically to where the, the pilots who don't get any credit are flying so close to the earth, weaving in and out of everything. We get to 90 or 80 minutes into a 90 minute flight and we bank to the south. And I know it sounds Hollywood, but in my mind, I, I said 556, 557, freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward and freedom will be defended. And I have no idea how I remembered that. That's what President Bush said on 9-11. I said, well, forget counting. I'm going to say that over and over. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward and freedom will be defended. And that's when it finally sunk in and hit me. And I said to myself, I'm on this mission and we're going to kill them. And then we did another bank to the South and we, uh, the air crew, the air crew, here's people that don't get credit. They put their butts on the, on the seats. They could have died with us. They opened the door for us. And imagine if we weren't smart enough to know how to open that door on that super secret helicopter. And we got two helicopters full of Navy SEALs who can't get out. (laughs) <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, right. Again, guys, guys that did their part to get us out. And um, we, he opened the door. I remember looking out the side. I got Cairo the dog, uh, the Belgian Malinois next to me. And I look out. There's electricity. I know that we just flew over a golf course. This is not a war zone. And I kind of smiled at my last arrogant smile. And I remember thinking, this is some serious Navy SEAL shit we're about to do. And then, and So can I, can I, can I be... Yeah, no, we got to get to what happened when you went in there, but we do have the President Bush soundbite. Listen. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. Make no mistake. The United States will hunt down and punish those responsible for these cowardly acts. The resolve of our great nation is being tested. But make no mistake, we will show the world that we will pass this test. So every once in a generation, you get a leader who's, who says exactly the right thing at the right time. And that was one of those moments. Yeah, that, I'm no doubt about it. That, that was a, it's a, I, I always, um, I'll tell people, you know, I never, ever want another 9-11, but I would love another 9-12. Because that was, that was a time mm. when we were all together as a nation and, and we took off the the, the, the ridiculous blinders of political correctness and realize that we're on this team and there are people that are at war with us and we can beat them. 
you have spoken of the now famous photo in the Situation Room that night. You're you're in the helicopter on your way to the Bin Laden compound, and President Obama, who made the call to 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 put you on this mission, is sitting in the Situation Room in the White House with Hillary Clinton, with the Secretary of Defense Gates, and others. And that photo is just so iconic. What do you make of it? Of what of what that photo captured? See, that photo captured so much because. The first point right there is that was not the Situation Room. That was a room adjacent to the Situation Room. And the guy in the middle is a one-star general, General Webb. The people in the Situation Room could not get the feed up, so they couldn't see it. General Webb did. And that's the contingency. Well, 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 it didn't go the way it was supposed to be planned. He called people. And President Obama is sitting in the back corner in a folding chair because uh, General Webb offered him his chair. He said, no, no, you're doing the right thing. I'll sit back here, which I think is cool. Uh, and yeah. so they're watching, and, and that picture was taken with the helicopter, the first one. I wasn't on the one that went down. It went. Uh, the first helicopter crash landed in the front yard, which was which was the what's the worst thing that could happen scenario for us. And when it crashed again, Admiral McRaven, realizing what I said earlier, if you're worrying or freaking out about something, won't help it. Don't do it. He calmed them down by saying he didn't even know half the half the team was dead right now. He said, obviously, we've had a contingency, but don't worry. My guys are prepared to carry on, knowing that would calm them down. But he's like, I don't you know, I don't know what we're going to do. But then the guys got out and started. They, they took, took it from there. And they um, so that picture right there was was the entire cabinet um, watching it unfold. And that, that was a it wasn't a crash. The, the lead pilot, flight lead, saved everyone's lives by realizing he couldn't hover because it was warmer. There was an updraft. And he, if he could get the tail to that fence and pin the nose. It wouldn't roll, and he did exactly that. And it's just it, wow. that photo says so much. It's one of the most amazing photographs in this nation's history. It's crazy, and they were watching it. They were watching, and now we can watch it. You know, as a result of the technology and the cameras that you guys had, and the, the helicopters, we can watch it. And that's eerie and, and amazing, and really pretty cool too. So, so all of this is happening, and you and you get there, soup to nuts, fifteen minutes, right? In inside and outside, like the whole mission. Once you got out of those helicopters, fifteen minutes long. Um, I think it was about 15 minutes till we killed in Laden. We were on the ground for 47 oh. minutes because okay. there was so much, there was so much stuff in the house. We didn't realize that bin Laden had been running Al Qaeda from the second floor of that building, three offices. He was running the entire show. When we got in there, we got up to him and got him. But, um, then it was, it was, it was just, there was so much stuff to get. And plus and we had many, to blow up the helicopter. How many guys are on the ground for this? Uh, I guys. think 20, 20, 23 guys. Uh, okay. so, well, the plan was 23. We also had. Uh, two pilots and two aircrew from the first helicopter where uh, I, I remember I didn't know the helicopter crashed when I went through the, the front carport I looked to the side and they were standing there I remember looking at these guys with American flags like who are these dudes because I didn't know the helicopter <laughs> crashed it was very very chaotic few first minutes until we got right. in but uh, but just when we got in because I was I was initially supposed to be on the team that, that went to the rooftop we were going to drop uh, uh, snipers the dog an interpreter and a machine gun outside and they were going to put my team on the roof we were going to jump from the roof down to the balcony and hopefully engage through the uh, the glass window to the bedroom, but because they put us out uh, put us down outside, I was like in the back and I got to watch cool guys do cool things. And when we actually got into Bin Laden's house, I was in in the back looking down a hallway on the first floor of Bin Laden's house, and I, I remember just being so proud of my guys, thinking you know we could blow up at any time, but look at these guys, no one's being phased by this. They're do, they're doing exactly we're doing everything like we do anything. We're um, slow as smooth, smooth as fast. Escalate forces you need, and even even to the point where they were moving children from different rooms to be with uh, elder women because we're the good guys, and we don't want these kids to be any more scared than they are. 
just the, the, the stuff that, that the good guys do that Al Qaeda would not to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, and so, yeah, and, and, and you know, it was methodical. It was, this was by no means one of the most difficult targets we'd ever taken down. We're with some of the best guys in the world, and we methodically took the second floor and then went to the third. All right. Now I want to go through that. But before we get to that, I understand there was a prearranged word that you would use to, contri- to communicate back to Admiral McRaven that you did get uh, Osama bin Laden. And what was that word? The word was, and it's a pro word, it was by no means a nickname. The pro word was Geronimo. And all that Geronimo means is we are in this position now. Geronimo happens to mean we are with bin Laden right now. And Geronimo EKA means we're with bin Laden, enemy killed in action. It was, um, okay, so, we, you know, there, so was, that obviously, was, there the, was obviously. That there was, was the plan, because you don't want to yeah, be saying, yeah. oh, we found him. Right, over the, no. <laughs> you don't want to communicate more yeah. than you have to over the walkie-talkies and so on. Okay, I get that. All right, so okay. uh-huh. you go to the. You go to the first floor and I mean, I'm talking about you, you go to the first floor and yep. how, do, how do you get in? It was already open. They had, the, my guys had, had reached the front door. They, uh, I don't even think they needed to go explosive. I think they just opened it. Uh, they had already, there'd been a shootout in the guest room, which is behind us to the south. They killed a, a brar, one of the, one of the Al Qaeda couriers. They killed Abu Ahmed al-Kuwaiti through the, one of the windows and his wife, his wife actually jumped on top of him. She was trying to be a human shield, which That's is another indicator. Do. Yep, there's an indicator that there's somebody important here. So the door was open when I got there, and I had about eight guys in front of me, eight or nine guys in front of me going down a hallway. And uh, part of my guys towards the end of the hallway from me was a, a barricaded door. They were breaching it, hitting it with some tools, and then they went explosive. It opened, and then uh, we found a stairwell. And the woman that found Bin Laden said, I don't know what it looks like inside the house, but you will find a stairwell. And on the stairwell, you will find Khalid Bin Laden. And he's his 20-year-old son. He will be armed. And if you can get rid of Khalid bin Laden, the way she said was, you will get a shot at the big guy. I can't believe she knew that much because that's what happened. She she, she was 100% right about everybody in the house. Holy cow. She knew knew her deal. She knew her deal. You saw him going going from one to two or two to three? I I went up. um, the, The guy in front of me took care of Khalid bin Laden. There was about seven guys in front. We... We stepped over Khalid's body and we got to the second floor. And that's when everybody except for except one guy went to the right and left. They were clearing the rooms to our right and left because there were more. So all the guys in front of you went and started clearing the rooms on the second floor. You were in the back of the line at that point. I was in the back. But then I from there, I turned into what we call the number two man. So the number one man is now pointing up the last set of stairs at a curtain. There wasn't a door. There was a curtain. And I became the two man, which means I put a hand on his shoulder to kind of let him know he's got a guy behind him. And when I squeeze him, it means we have enough guys at time to go. So he doesn't need to look back. His eyes are front. He's looking forward to control the threat. I, my job is to look backwards. And then we didn't have enough guys though. And he just started talking to me like, we got to go now. We got to go. And what he was, what he had seen was he saw people behind the curtain moving and he assumed those are the suicide bombers, but we can beat them if we go now. And he's telling me but, to go. But, I, but I, you're I, watching. But you're watching these guys go in and out of these rooms on the second floor, and you still don't yeah. know whether they're going to find Bin Laden in one of those rooms. Well, we we didn't. But we I knew we, for some reason the, the woman that found Bin Laden said he was on the third floor. I knew oh. we had to get up there, and the guy in front of me wanted to go now, and I was, I was like, you know what? Let's just do it. And I, I squeezed his shoulder. And for me, it wasn't bravery. It was more of a okay, we're going to blow up now. Let's. I'm tired of thinking about it. Um, so I squeezed it. Over I, I can close. I can close my eyes and see those stairs right now. Going up, he went up the stairs, he moved the curtain, and there were people there 
that he assumed were the suicide bombers. So he, he like tackled them down the hallway to absorb the explosion. Wait, what are you looking him. at at this point? You're looking at a room or a hallway or well, set it up uh, No, a, a hallway. Uh, we went up the stairs, top of the stairs. He moved the curtain, which is right at the end of the stairs, went into a hallway. He moved down the hallway, and because he went forward, I turned to the right, and that right was right into a doorway, and, and um, standing in front of me three feet away was Osama bin Laden. And his hands were on his wife's shoulders, and he's sort of, sort of pushing her toward me. And, and he, you know, he, he was a very high threat of being a suicide bomber. He had less than a second to convince me not to kill him. I remember looking at him thinking he's taller than I thought, and he's, he's a lot skinnier than I thought, and his beard is gray, but that's his nose, and that's him. I've seen that picture a thousand times. He is a threat. He's a suicide bomber. I need to treat him as such, and I shot him twice in the head, and, and he fell down. I shot him again over the shoulders of his, his wife, Amal. And then he, he was down. And then I moved Amal. I moved her out of the way. You can you sort of get this sixth sense of who's a threat and who's not. And I could tell she wasn't. And so I moved her towards the wall and I wanted to sit her on the bed away from Bin Laden's body. And as I was moving Amal, I looked down and, and Bin Laden's two-year-old son was there. And I remember thinking as a father, like the humanity of this, but thinking, this kid has got nothing to do with this. And I picked him up and I set him down. And other Navy SEALs now were coming in the room. I could hear Bin Laden taking his last breath. I could smell it. And I was standing there and, and a guy came up to me, one of my guys, and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, are, are you okay? And I said, no. What do we do now? Mm-hmm. And he smiled. I kind of laughed and said, well, now we find the computers, man. We do this every night. Hundreds of times we always do this. And I said, yeah, you're right. I'm back. And I said, oh, my uh-huh. God. He said, yeah, you, he said, you just killed Osama Bin Laden. Your life just changed. Let's get to work. Oh my God! <sighs> yeah, did, crazy. did the did you did you put him in a body bag right away? Like, yeah. what were you worried somebody was going to take him? You know, because they would not his fighters would not want you to have the body. We um we, we started we took pictures. I was actually the guy holding his head together. If the pictures are ever released, those are my gloves in the picture putting his head together. Um, took pictures of that. Our Arabic speaker was um talking to his kids, his daughters, his older daughters trying to get them to say who it was. We put him in a body bag. Some of us went to the second floor, started clearing out the, the uh, offices, all kinds of intelligence, anything from papers to hard drives to thumb drives, uh, compact discs, uh, computers, anything we could fit um, in bags. We started trying to round people up. I went back upstairs and helped um, three other guys carry his body down the, the stairs. I heard um, the Arabic speaker. He was talking to the, one of the older daughters. She, she said in Arabic, yeah, that's him. And she called him Sheikh Osama. You got Sheikh Osama. And that's mm-hmm. when we called um, the ground force commander. And he said over the radio for God and country, Geronimo, Geronimo, Geronimo. We carried um, Bin Laden's body out. And actually, when we brought him outside of the compound, the sniper that initiated the fire for Captain Phillips to save Captain Phillips, we said, here's your guy. And he looks back. He's you're kidding. He's like, no, we got him. He's like, let's leave. So we, um, the, the helicopter, the, they blew up the helicopter that was in the front yard. The helicopter I came in landed. We did. We, we did that intentionally so that the bad guys couldn't have any uh, intel or yeah, uh, any Yeah, we wanted parts. to blow it up. Yeah, we blew it up because we didn't want them getting the technology, um, which sort of worked, but the tail fell over and we saw that. Uh, so they did get the tail and abruptly sold it to the Chinese because Pakistan is definitely our ally. And then another <laughs> helicopter came in and um, we got on that helicopter and, um, and then we left. And so we're flying out. On a mission that we're supposed well, I was to just die. Gonna say, I was just going to say that there is, you can see in that infrared video that we've seen now, the, the body bag, the, the white body bag, or at least looks white on the on the camera. 
And it's crazy to, even for us to look at that and know that that's bin Laden in there. That's Osama bin Laden. You think about Obama and you think about McRaven hearing that. It's such a great line for God and country, for God and right. country. Mm-hmm. Geronimo, mm-hmm. Geronimo, Geronimo. Was that, I mean, is that a thing? Is that the way you say something like that in the military? Why? I mean, or was that an ad lib for God and country? I, th- I, I think that, um, like I said, the ground force commander who said those words to McRaven was born to lead this mission on the ground. And I, I, I bet he had said that in his head a million times since 2001. Something like that, that he knew what he was going to say when he was the guy to lead it. He'd always been the guy that was going to lead it and everyone knew it. I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know how, but we just knew it would be him. That is in the field uh, of one small step for man and one one giant step for mankind, giant leap. Uh, So you, okay, so keep going. You, you get, you get on the helicopters and you start getting out of there. Yeah, and, and even Admiral McRaven and, and President Obama was thinking, okay, well, now we got to get them out because everyone knows we're here now and Pakistan's got F-16s and they're going to scramble them or something's going to happen. We got to leave and, and we're, we're flying. And again, we're in a position where worrying about getting shot down is not going to help. So I'm not going to worry about it. And all the other guys knew that. And um, we just started our stopwatches. So we're, we're, we're looking at our stopwatches and we know that it, but if we know that if it's, a, it's, a, it's a 90 minute flight. And if we can live for 90 minutes, if we can live for 90 minutes, we can live for 50 years. We get to see our kids. We can do this. But we're not there yet. So we're looking at our, at our watches and it's like, okay, it's been 10 minutes. Now it's been 20 minutes. And it's, you know, it's, it's loud in there, but no one's talking. And now it's been 30 minutes. Okay, it's been 40 minutes. And then I love sports analogies just because most sports are team efforts. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about like watching a, a no-hitter being pitched at Yankee Stadium at the top of the seventh. And the fans are like, you know, I'm not going to say anything, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to jinx it. Now it's 50 mm-hmm. minutes. It's been 60 minutes. It's been 70 minutes. Now it's 80 minutes. And the best sports analogy for this is when Team USA hockey was beating the Russians in Lake Placid in the, in the Olympics. And you can, they're not supposed to win this game, but they're up by one. And you can hear the crowd in New York, 10, mm. 9, 8. We're nervous. We can still screw this up. And then at 85 minutes, because we're flying really fast, the pilot came over. In that typical monotone voice. And pilots always have a monotone voice because they're trying to keep everyone in the back calm. That's what they're doing. Don't worry, we're mm-hmm. calm. And the pilot came over and said, all right, gentlemen, for the first time in your lives, you're going to be happy to hear this. Welcome to Afghanistan. Oh, that's crazy. it. And that's, that's the high five. I thought, at first I thought you were going to say, and he said, do you believe in miracles? <laughs> <laughs> that that would have been better. We should have thought that worked. <laughs> but yeah, then we, well, then we and let, I love- we I love the piece of the story because now you get there. And by this point, the the female CIA analyst and her team must know they've, they're they exposed to the information as well. And tell us what you did with her. Um, we we landed. The other team landed. It was, a, you know, we're giving hugs to each other. We I, I talked to the, the point man, the guy that led me up to the third floor. And he and I set aside to a corner, and had a few words, the whole what in the world did we just do type thing. And um, and then he said, there she is. And there's. There's the woman, they called her Maya in the movie. And he goes, there she is. We, you know, you got it. And he said, you got to give her something. You own this. So we walked over and I pulled the magazine out of my gun. And, um, I said, you have room for this in your backpack. Mm-hmm. He said, yeah, I think I do. And then we walked her over to Bin Laden's body. And, and, um, um, in the movie zero dark 30 at the end, they showed her Bin Laden's body and she got emotional and cried. That's not at all what happened. No, she was so mentally strong. No, no. We walked her over. And I remember thinking, this is historic. This is like, this is going down in the history books with Iwo Jima. And 
George Washington crosses the Delaware to fight the Hessians in the Revolutionary War. And she found him. And then I'm looking at her thinking, she gave up her life for this. She, she never got married because she's working 20 hours a day to find him. And there he is. And then me being the arrogant Navy SEAL, I said, um, well, um, I, I got to think of something cool to say. This is a lot of pressure now. And we know what do we say? <laughs> so, yeah, typical Navy This SEAL. is a lot of we, pressure. <laughs> so we walk over there. And you got to excuse my language, but the story doesn't work without it. We, uh, we looked down and I thought it would have been good enough for this. I said, I pointed at Bin Laden. I said, is that your guy? And she looked down for a second and a half and said, well, I guess I'm out of a fucking job. <laughs> <laughs> and then she left. That was it. No cry. No way. Isn't that cool? She's, She's so never cool. gone public. We don't nope, know who this person is. Do you think she she'll never, ever reveal she never herself? Will. I don't think she will. Um, and I, I mean, I mean, for, you know, if she, you know, anyone in their right mind would hire her for any job in the world. But I think it's, that's just not her style. She's just completely cool, completely tough, very smart. Smartest person I think I've ever met. And just, um, you know, she did it and, and just incredible. And, uh, you know, n- yeah, she's, I don't think she ever will. Do we know what she's doing now? I have no idea. <sighs> she's so just, she could she, still be with the I CIA. Did. I, could be. I, I talked to her though, because you know the movie's pretty accurate. How no one believed her, and she got a bunch of grief. And as soon as we got Bin Laden, everyone's at an award ceremony getting awards except for her. And I, I talked to her at some point, and I ran into her in New York, and I said, uh, "How'd it go down there?" She goes, "I didn't even get a parking spot." <laughs> <laughs> that that had to change later. I mean, come on. I am assuming so. Yeah. Okay. The conclusion to our episode is right after this. Don't go away. There's so many heroes in this whole thing. I love that you point oh, out, amazing. you know, the guys who flew the helicopters. You know, like there's so so many people who have gone rather unsung in this, and it's to your credit oh, yeah. to, to give the credit away. Um, so, can I, we just jump forward now? You've done it. Yeah. By the way, did did you ever have a conversation with your mom about like when did you get to reveal I, you know to what? her? I I did um, because we well we we brought the body up to Bagram Airfield so the. The smart guys, the uh, federal law enforcement and intelligence agencies could do the, the proper DNA test, did confirm it. Uh, the, we're standing there. Um, ben Laden's body is right next to us as we're eating these sandwiches. He's right here getting tested. And we saw President Obama walk out. We're watching the news. He walked down a, a red carpet. And I'm standing there. And I hear President Obama say, tonight I can report to the American people and to the world the United States conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of Al Qaeda. I hear President Obama say, Osama bin Laden. I look at Osama bin Laden. I take a bite of my sandwich. And I thought, oh how gosh. in the world did I get here from Butte, Montana? Right. The taco pizzas. Not long before. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and so, yeah. So, and then, uh, so obviously everyone knew I did get a chance to call my mom. And uh, they, I couldn't say anything because I was still in Afghanistan. But I said, Mom, you remember how. Um, I said I'd never get a silver star. Yeah, I'm sorry. I think I'm probably going to get another one. And she laughed. And I'd always been joking with my mother because um, she, she sort of knew what happened. And um, I'd always joke with her. Even when I was playing basketball in high school and college, even when I went to the Navy, I always joke with her and say, Mom, don't worry about me. You don't need to worry because I'm here to do something special. Don't worry about me, blah, blah, blah. And I always joke with her. Hey, you know, we're in Iraq. Don't worry about me, Mom. I'm fine. I'm here to do something special. On this call, I said, hey, Mom, by the way, you can start worrying about me because I think I just did that special thing. Oh my gosh. I mean, now that, that, that has to be the moment you're like, now this is the apex. This is the moment. Forget everything. It's surreal. Surreal. And just, just what an honor to be a part of that amazing team. 
to to be in the presence of that intelligence team, to fly with those pilots, to to listen to Admiral McRaven, who like if you've never to your listeners that uh, listen to the speech, uh, make your bed when he when he talks to yes. University of Texas. Yep. That it's got right twenty million views on YouTube. Oh my God, that's the one where I heard. I'm a public speaker. I heard that. I was just jealous. I can't believe I didn't write that. He he's got a special gift with them word things. He is he is incredible word things. But but hearing you and hearing this story, I mean, this is why most of us, I certainly love our love our U.S. military. You guys are the ones who make me feel everything when I look at that flag. I think about stories like this. I think about courage like you had. I think about the brotherhood. I think about the sacrifice. I feel gratitude. I love our country. I love our flag. I love you guys. I love what you stand for. I love what you, you make me feel like I'm a part of, you know, that that's, you are the ones who make us stand up and say, yes, yes. This is what it means to be an American. This is what, this is what the stars and stripes mean, right? It's like, and this is why it, it is infuriating when people don't see it. And when you see these Gallup polls, the patriotism is at an all-time low, and you see people out on the streets this past summer, summer saying America is a failed experiment, and they, and there's shame in some quarters at displaying the U.S. flag. I know. What what? Will you tell me what do those people need to know? Well, what they need to know too, first off, is be, one of the things they're worried about. They say domestic terrorism. They're talking about radicals in the U.S. military, which is so undermining and so insulting to everyone there because it doesn't matter everything from 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 well especially race doesn't matter when you raise your hand you're defending each other when when i was getting out of the navy one of um one of the big things so this is back in 2012 was don't ask don't tell let's repeal it i was looking at my guys i was in afghanistan i said do any of you guys really care if anyone's gay no Mm -hmm. i don't care what i don't care what you do i don't care what you look like or where you're from we took an oath to defend the constitution against all enemies and that's what the that's what the military does and the vast majority is just like that red white and blue that's what everyone's like too and it's it's a shame to see them try to try to pit everyone against each other especially in the military these are great people men and women right now who are over there doing what needs to be done and just just morale is huge morale is so key everything from sense of humor to knowing what you're doing and why and just to to throw the sideshow out there for 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 political points is it's it's sad to see it, especially during you know this this uh, upcoming Memorial Day. Um, it's just you need to remember what's important, and it's the people next to you. Well, and I, I hate to go this low with you because I just see you as such an elevated guest, but um, I do have to ask you about the ridiculous woke military ad that uh, the army put out, which I not the one that was spliced and diced with it was sort of showed our soft ad next to these russians training and looking right, tough yeah, yeah, that yeah. was bs that was russian propaganda but the ad the, the american piece of it was real which i did not know i was like wait no that has to be put together by putin he's just trying to show us as you know non-threatening which of course is not what putin thinks um oh no but that the american piece of that ad was real and for those of you at home who haven't seen it we're gonna play it listen This is the story of a soldier who operates your nation's Patriot Missile Defense Systems. Although I had a fairly typical childhood, took ballet, played violin, I also marched for equality. When I was six years old, one of my moms had an accident that left her paralyzed, but she tapped into my family's pride to get back on her feet eventually standing at the altar to marry my other mom. But as graduation approached, 
I began feeling like I'd been handed so much in life, a sorority girl stereotype. I needed my own adventures, my own challenge. And after meeting with an army recruiter, I found it, a way to prove my inner strength and maybe shatter some stereotypes along the way. Okay, so we we pulled the highlights from the edge, but I mean, look, I'm all yeah. for female empowerment. I think my audience so understands that, but I don't need to hear about her her ballet and her violin and her two no, moms and no. her sorority past to be inspired about our U.S. military or to get any young woman, I think, in America to join. Yeah, I don't think that's any part of it. Does uh, again, we all have different backgrounds. And that's fine, and you can. I'm a big. I'm a libertarian. You do whatever you want as long as you're not hurting anyone else. The problem I see here. Is it, 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 this is the gateway to experimentation, which the military doesn't need to be. And what that means is they want to. I'm all about equal opportunity, e- equal opportunity to show up. And if you can't meet the standards, I'm sorry, you, just, you couldn't meet the standards. That's fine. But once you start lowering the standards, that's where the problems come in. Um, yep. You know, I know I know women right now that I'm thinking of that can kick my butt, and I'm not even making that up. And that's fine. And, and uh, but we don't need to lower the standards just to get more. If the if the best person flying the S18 if the top five out of 20 happen to be Asian females, fine. I want those five flying the jets because they're the best. And that's what we have to do. We Equal opportunity, keep the standards high, but you don't get equal outcomes. And the problem is we're just, they're experimenting on the military for some reason. And even in the, it's not as tragic in the military. I do know people who are getting out early because of a lot of the political correctness, but most of the, like the young guys, I've got nephews that join the army. They kind of roll their eyes at it. And they'll ask me as a, well, the old man now, uh, you know what's the point of this? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't know. You should be on the range, trying to get your trying to get uh, your your scope sighted in. Can you imagine if you guys, as you were boarding those those helicopters, were like, okay, do we have someone who's black, someone who's a, a lesbian, someone who's trans? <laughs> like, so let's make sure no, we're in seriously. selecting. <laughs> there are there are I'm things sorry. that are fine in life, but they're not. Who, who you know? It, it should be you know eyes closed. Who's qualified? Go. That's it. And it's not, yeah. it's not complex. The, the military is not complex. Like I, like I said, the, the complexity comes with the intelligence people. Like I said earlier, I'm smart enough to carry a hammer and a gun, point me in the direction I will go. I can climb the fence. I can go through the window. That's it. It's, it's, not, it's not complicated. It doesn't matter that I'm from Montana and couldn't swim. I'm just, here we are. Well, that's the thing. Everybody has different skills. I mean, you've, you've been pretty clear about Maya playing an awfully important role in finding oh, Bin yeah. Laden and having the, the, the design of his compound down to the, to the step on which you'd find yeah. his son. I mean, this is obviously a brilliant woman. Why Why are brilliant. we not okay with different people have different skills and they can make the most of them and they can be equally that, important it. in different ways? Why do we have to say that the guys who we need to be the strongest physically and the biggest risk takers when it comes to physical confrontation generally happen to be men? That's fine. That is not diminishing to women. I, people have feminism completely confused. The, the, their definition of feminism, what it means to empower women, doesn't mirror my own at all. I think most sane people think that, but you know, we're going a different way now. I was shocked to see that from our military. I was shocked to see um, that they're flying the BLM flag now at our bases, at our military bases, and that this was approved at the highest levels. That's a political message. Why is our military doing politics? That, I don't understand that either. Well, I, I think at a certain level, especially the general officer level, you're appointed by certain people in Congress and everything becomes political and you need to toe the party line or the politically correct line or else you're not going to get a job. And at some point, it becomes to personal selfishness. What do I need to do to make myself better? What do I need to do in Congress? Same thing to get paid more to, to, to how's the pork going to help my district in this infrastructure package. So I get reelected. And, uh, I mean, the issue is too, and, and uh, you know, we, we need to, to get some of the junior officers to be in charge because we've been pretty good at everything except winning a war. Maybe we're doing something wrong. 
Um, you know, we, we had a war that we should have won in 2004 and we're still not out of there. Um, it's, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's not, someone wants to get promoted. So they bring in something more ridiculous that we need to check the block. Like we thought it was ridiculous now that, uh, you know, when, before we go to war, I had, had to go to dental to make sure my cavities were updated. Now it's got to make sure you have all this, um, this p- political science online stuff done before you can go to Syria. And it's just, oh, it's are they making you do uh, sensitivity a, training or you have to oh, take oh, anti-bias training now? Oh, they're doing everything. There's stuff that's so ridiculous. I, I, I like that that commercial that was just out as the tip of the iceberg. I wanted to believe for a week it was fake. Like I hope the Russians did this because if you think if you think Russia, Iran, and China are looking at us and thinking there's there's America leading the way, they're laughing. Oh my God! When they see the violin, the violin and the ballet. Meanwhile, it's it's completely not representative. I mean, the the ad and its tone and its approach made the military sound like some sort of effete place you can go. You know, where you're going to see little ballet it dancers really prancing around. And it, the American military is exactly the opposite. It is the toughest, most severe, most threatening, most powerful fighting force in the world. And as you point out, not perfect. History may not be a hundred percent clean, but. 99% of the time, we're the good guys. And we we are always we are, aiming to do the right thing. We are the good guys, and we are the most powerful military in the world. And and again, everything is more dramatic um, on online and on, as you know, on, on cable news, what gets the most ratings. Mm. Most people out there are really doing a great job. Our military, our Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps, uh, is phenomenal. And, and as opposed to being afraid of what they're doing, they're, they're more of a roll your eyes, like, are we seriously doing this before we go over there? But um, right. I, I'm, I'm very confident. This, this military was designed to fight bigger militaries, and we could destroy anyone in the world if we want to. The only reason we haven't is because we're the good guys. But uh, a lot of the sensitivity training, you know, it's fine on the university campus, even though I disagree with it. Um, Black Lives Matter has been hijacked by Marxists. We know that. I'd like Black Lives, yes, matter. But now these white liberal Marxists have taken over. Just keep that out of the military, off the embassies. Um, you know, uh, uh, forward defense, alliance, solidarity, and deterrence. That's what we need to do as a military. What do you, I think it's interesting you say you're a libertarian, because I know you're not a partisan guy. So you tweet out, Democrats aren't the answer, neither are Republicans. Wise up, in response to which I said, <laughs> amen. Yes, well, that's you. how I feel too. But uh, I was surprised. I, I will confess, I kind of thought you were a Republican. I thought you were, I think you were a Trump supporter, although I, I don't totally remember my history on that. Uh, but what, yeah, I, why do you say neither party is the answer? Well, I'm, I'm conservative as far as, um, you know, do your own thing. The government needs to keep, you know, stop taking my money to give it to all these social programs. Um, you know, the economy, other stuff, a, a big business. I think that it's, you know, pay your people what they deserve. I believe in paying my employees more than, you know, just to take care of your people. Um, but as far as like the liberal side of it, like, like I said about don't ask themselves, oh, fine, whatever, you're good. I don't care. You do what you want to do as long as you're not hurting someone else. I'm fine with that. Don't lie to yourself. Admit what you're doing and do it. Just fine. Just don't affect anyone else. So I'm, I'm on both sides. I, um, and I've spent a little bit of time in Washington on Capitol Hill. That was one of my first jobs up there. And just, I've just seen, I'm, I'm a big believer that uh, a lot of narcissists go there and there's no shame and, and politicians will say anything they can to get reelected. So I don't, I think the two party system is wrong and there, there's got to be, most of us are in the middle. We just don't have the platforms anymore. That's right. Welcome to my show. Um, you, <laughs> I got to get you to, to, to comment on what you point out, you know, about the war, about the war in Afghanistan. Uh, we are, we're officially pulling all of our troops out. Uh, they're saying it's going to happen in July. And the Taliban is, is openly saying, we won. The Taliban, we, the Taliban yeah. have won. We've defeated America. Um, what do you make of that? Did they? Did they win? And what do you make of the fact that already uh, there's news just today that the Taliban attacks are picking up there right now? What's going to happen there? 
Well, we knew that was going to happen, and it doesn't matter what you do, they're going to say they won. You just saw Hamas recently said they beat Israel. That's what they do, and they can shout it from the rooftops, which they will. But we just did, we went about it the wrong way. We did it the right way when we invaded, when we bombed them, we kicked them all into Pakistan. Um, the problem that we had is we, we, we're not nation builders. We shouldn't have Marines driving through these roads trying to build schools. Hit them hard, keep a, a, maintain a presence of air superiority if they set up the camps and bomb them. Hit them really, really hard, look them in the eye and say no. You do that again, we're coming back. We're not going to make peace. We're not going to bring Jeffersonian democracy there. They don't want it. They want their valleys. If Taliban knew that we were, gonna, we were just coming for al-Qaeda, they would have given them to us. They, just, they thought we were a paper tiger. Um, but we're not going to stay in there and force them to do it. If we, if we can't teach them to fight in 20 years, they're never going to learn to fight. Yes, the, the warlords are going to take over again. It's going to happen. It happens every single time. Back to Alexander the Great. We knew it. We got to be smart about being stupid. We're not going to sit there and turn into the United States. Do you see terrorist attacks going up as a result of this, you know, long haul, once they get their act back, back together and get resettled there and don't have to worry about military, U.S. military on the ground? No, I mean, we're, we're going to we're going to maintain a presence and probably an embassy. So we'll have Bagram Airfield. We'll have some stuff in Jalalabad for cross borders. We'll be able to launch jets and bomb them. But I mean, they're already doing this and they're in Yemen, they're in Syria, they're in Iraq, they're in Sudan. Al Qaeda is the, the whole nail the jello to the wall thing. They're not, we just get front side focused on Afghanistan, Afghanistan, Afghanistan. Afghanistan was won in 2004. I was driving motorcycles up and down the street in Jalalabad and eating in a, uh, shawarmas in the bazaar. Um, we just, we stay, if you stay long enough, regardless of your intentions, you will be seen as an occupier. And that's where we're at now. I mean, giving them, uh, we don't need to tell everyone when we're leaving. We can do what we want. You can just leave. You don't need to say, and mm-hmm. certainly don't say September 11th we're leaving. Just, just leave. And, and, and it, it, you know what, if, 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 you, if you know that the Americans are pr- going to protect you, but then we're going to leave and you're going to get massacred, maybe that's incentive to finally learn how to fight for yourself. Mm. Yeah, because that was the original statement by the Biden administration. We're going to leave on September 11th. And then people are like, really? You're giving us a set date, you know, for, yeah. just so you can have a spike the ball moment. And then he moved it to July. Can I just ask you a quick question about Israel? Sure. Because as somebody who, you know, we are the good guys. And I, when, I, when you hear the full Rob O'Neill story, you'll hear about how you and other troops while in that compound. I know you took care of a little girl who was standing there alone. You got her to an adult. You, bin Laden's two-year-old son, you put him on the bed and made sure he was out of harm's way as much as he could be. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about whether Israel's response to the Hamas rockets was disproportionate, whether they should have, uh, it was not proportional, I should say, and and whether they had an obligation to be more protective of civilians, even though those civilians were put in harm's way by Hamas. That's documented. The people who criticize Israel would say, we don't care that they were put in harm's way by Hamas. Israel's supposed to be the good guys, and Israel should have been uh, not so severe and should have taken extra pains and should have sort of gone easy given the number of civilian deaths. So your thoughts on that? Well, Hamas doesn't have to tell the truth. They like to lie. And they know the more Palestinian children that die, the better for their cause, because they will get the person. I don't know what it is about the media worldwide. They love Hamas. I don't know what the deal is. They, they hate Israel. They love Hamas. And I mean, figure out how many Hamas is randomly shooting rockets that fall short and kill Palestinian children. That happens all the time. They yep. can blame that on Israel. And then in their, in their media centers, and where they're launching missiles, they happen to put them in schools and hospitals and put human shields as children in there, which is horrible. I, I feel horrible for the Palestinian people because most war zones I've been in, there are just people trying to get on with their lives. And that's the Palestinian people. Horrifying. It's Hamas that's the problem. And they're going to lie about everything. If, if Israel was going to do too much, they would level the entire place and kill everyone which they could. Um, they're the ones, they're, they're the only liberal democracy in the Middle East. They're the only ones really not expanding the way other countries are. They're, they're not the bad guys. All you need to do is tell yourself the truth. 
if, if, if Israel put down their guns and threw them in the, in the Mediterranean Sea tomorrow, there'd be genocide. If Hamas did it, there'd be peace. Like, it's not hard to see that. But for mm-hmm. some reason, they want to spin everything. And, it, and, and, and the, the poor Palestinian children, man, they're, they're just, they're being used by the media, used by Hamas. And yeah, Israel, Israeli bombs kill them. And I hate that. I mean, I, I, believe me, as someone that's seen war and people that it's worse, I wish we could all hold hands and, and have peace. I would love it. And it's just, it's, it's, it's tragic to see, but it, it, it gets spun so bad to the point that makes Israel look like the aggressor. Okay, it's the land thing, but how far back does that go? Yes, the, the Palestinians were there, but the, I'm pretty sure Jews were there a long, long time ago, too. Um, mm-hmm. And look, I mean, look at Jerusalem. You have Christians, Jews, and Muslims all living in peace. It, it's, it's very possible. It's Hamas. It's Hamas and the radicals that are, that, you know, it's, it's, it's um, like p- people aren't born to hate. They're taught to hate. And that's just part of the problem that Hamas is doing with a lot of these people over there. It's, we're, yeah. this, I mean, we're, we could be close to peace over there. It, it's heartbreaking to see that, that honest people are just trying to live through this stuff. I know. And it's just never ending. All right. So let me shift gears and end it with this. Um, you're out of the military now. So what are you doing? How do you pay the bills when you leave the military? Um, I started as a public speaker. I speak with leading authorities out of um, Washington, D.C. And it, it wasn't a um, show up and tell the Bin Laden story. It was more of a what did we learn as a successful team, what traits are common to success and how does that apply to you? And the very, very basics, you know, keep it simple is uh, your team will work harder if morale is high. If people know what they're doing and why effective communication, you know, when you're done saying what you're saying, stop, stop saying it. And um, no matter what, never quit. Um, and, and so I give speeches on that. I did start a foundation called Special Operators Transition Foundation, which helps special operators go from the military to the private sector because when i got out i had no idea what, what am i going to do now sell sunglasses or t-shirts or whatever and uh, i learned that i had traits that i learned working with men and women in special operations that people want to hire so my foundation helps those men and women transition uh oh, to get their second careers that's all awesome. well, can i ask you that let, let me follow up on that um and, and i'll give you the floor but but do you do you see a lot of PTSD in these warriors? Do you have it? You know how how does that factor yeah, in? So I, I think do. We, we skip I, over I, that too uh, too often. Um, I do. I, I know I have it, and a lot of people have it. And the problem with PTSD is it normally shows up about six years after the fact, when the the realization that what we were doing is not normal, and um, mm. we did, and they really asked a lot of us. And it, it comes with um, everything from um, thinking depressing thoughts to sometimes nightmares, not necessarily about war, but just on edge. Um, to, and a lot of guys get into the depression, which leads to self-medication that leads down a bad path. So um, the, the, well, I tell people now that you, you, you probably have some form and, and the way to handle it is to, to really talk to someone. And, and the, but what I mean is I recommend a therapist, but also if you're having a, if you're having a bad day, call someone. And if you're having, you know, cause they might be having a good day, but if you're having a good day, call someone because they might be having a bad day and you're having a good day, you know, mm. just, it's okay to yeah. get it out there that, that uh, this is not, it's not normal to do a lot of stuff we did. So the PTSD is there, but it's manageable. Um, uh, you know, again, with a sense of humor. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. And I'm sorry, were you going to say something that something else that you're doing? Uh, I, did, I cut you off. No, I just said that that's the foundation. Um, and then, uh, you know, I obviously wrote the operator. I'm, I'm collaborating with Dakota Meyer, Medal of Honor recipient marine a book that we're yep. hopefully coming out with soon i have it at the pentagon which is the right thing to do if you're gonna ever write a book make sure you get it approved so you don't give up tactics yes. and that'll come out and that's more of a what next like what do we do now because like I, I said earlier you know everyone's got their first day but everyone has their last day um and yeah. what do we do now like like when oh, good. people say to me, they'll say to me like, 
Oh, of course, yeah, that'd be great. I'll have the photo with me too. He's he's, he's hilarious. But like when, when people say, "Well, once a seal, always a seal," I'll say, "No, I was a seal. Now I'm not. We just you move on. Like I was in high school. Now I'm not. And I was a seal. Now I'm not. And we all have to move on. Like you retire. You can retire after 20 years in the military at at 39 years old. Your life is just starting. What do we do now? Mm-hmm. So okay, yeah, like so that. picking up on on um something I heard. There's a Fox News documentary that I saw with Peter Ducey when shortly when you first came out. Yeah. Um, and it was a good, it was a good question and it was an interesting answer. And I, I wanted, I wondered if there was an update to it because in that exchange, you said you weren't sure if killing bin Laden was the best or worst thing to ever happen to you. Yes. What I are your thoughts of that, on that, that now? Well, at the time I didn't know what it was because, um, no one's really ever, ever done this before. I, I remember even someone said, wow, this, this is kind of like if we hired the guy that, killed Hitler. And I said, well, Hitler killed himself. And they said, exactly. I'm like, oh, okay. That's deep. That's pretty deep. Um, I don't know. It, it, it was, I, it's been the best thing when I, I donated a, <laughs> the shirt that I wore into Bin Laden's bedroom to the 9-11 Memorial Museum in lower Manhattan. And when I, oh. I donated it anonymously, just so people could, something tangible that was there. I never wanted it to be about me. But when I donated it, they had about 30 um, family members there. And they said having a, a real face tell, you know, they lost family members. They said a real face with what happened, there will never be closure, but this helps with the healing. And to see their emotional response, if I can tell more people what happened, I, I can help more. So that that's worth it. But then there's the other side too with the, the you know, we get conspiracy theories from the far right wing okay. because um, they, they just hate, they hate that um, the President Obama ordered the mission. And so they want to say it was a fake. Oh. It was, you know, it's all, like President Trump retweeted something from QAnon, all this nonsense. And people say, like, you're lying. You didn't kill Bin Laden. I'm like, you know what? I sometimes wish I didn't. I'm just telling you what happened. So I don't know. I mean, it, it was great for the world. It was great for, for the coalition, great to prove that we can do it. But it's, um, you know, sometimes it'd be better. I'd, sometimes I'd rather just be out, you know, playing really bad golf. Mm-hmm. There, there was a story I read about a man coming up to you with his grandson, and that man's son yep. had died on 9-11. What did he say to you? He said, um, my grandson always asked me, why did God do this? And uh, the grandfather said, God didn't do this. The devil did. And he looked at me and said, you, sir, killed the devil. So that was pretty mm. deep. You sure did. And we we are grateful. This is a grateful nation, no matter what these morons who are too young to understand anything about our history say in the streets. It is a grateful America-loving nation still. I believe that. And the polls do reflect that the majority of people still feel that way about our country. So last question on this Memorial Day, as we as we honor the fallen, many of whom you've known and served beside, what do you love about America? Uh, I, what, I, what I do love about America on Memorial Day, too, is people realize it's not, uh, mo- a lot of people realize it's not just a three-day weekend. It, it, and it's not for the veterans, it's for the fallen. It's for everyone that died, you know, the, the 173 women that died in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria, uh, all, the, all the men that died there as well, um, that it's not just a three-day weekend, but it's also not to be, you know, yeah, have, have your moment of silence, have a tear, but then when you drink that beer, that glass of wine, tilt it up, uh, look at the sky and realize that they want you to do that, that they died for the freedom to do that. And they would do the same thing in your shoes. And uh, um, I, I, uh, again, as opposed to going on Twitter, when you go outside on Sunday and Monday, look at, look at America, look at the people, notice the American flag is everywhere you go to and everyone respects it. It's just, you know, not for ratings, just for love of the country. 
Rob O'Neill, a true American hero. I'm proud to know you. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you, Megan. And uh, we'll do this again when, when I get Dakota on here for the next book. You are booked. All right. So I hope that was as meaningful to all of you as it was to me. I, I can't wait to share this one with my kids and to share the meaning of Memorial Day with them. The privilege it is to be an American, to live in this great country and to have guys like Rob O'Neill out there defending our freedoms. Right. Take a moment to, to say thank you, to remember, to be humble, to be grateful and enjoy your loved ones and your friends and your time together. That's what it's all about. Uh, I'm thinking of all of you. I'm very grateful to all of you for listening. And God bless America. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. The Megan Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 